This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning, gentle listeners. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is uh, uh, just wrapping up a few days off. Uh, we expect and hope to see him again now tomorrow. So you'll be uh, listening to uh, Patty, Patty's voice tomorrow uh, if all goes well. Well, uh, lots to talk about on VOCM Open Line this morning and anything that I raise is just a little fodder for, you know, mach- mach- machination, machination, uh, something to chew on. Uh, so uh, <laughs> if you are, if I make these suggestions, it doesn't mean that's the only thing we're talking about. Uh, you set the agenda here on VOCM Open Line. So now is your opportunity to give us a call, get on, and uh, voice your opinion. Well, here's a few things, as I said, to chew on, and it, uh, I use that term advisedly. Uh, Loblaws has confirmed that it is cutting the discounted amount of on products nearing expiry to 30% from 50 There had been these rumors going around. You saw it on social media, and we you heard it on the grocery store shelves uh, or aisles in the aisles sorry, Uh, people saying, wait a minute, Uh, when they wanted to get rid of things real quick, this used to be down to 50% off. Now it's only 30% off. Well, uh, among those that noticed that trend was Sylvain Charlebois of Dalhousie University's Agri-Food and Analytics Lab, and we speak to him frequently here on VOCM. He also happens to be the co-host of the Food Professor podcast, and he's fairly active on Twitter, raising issues of concern to average everyday consumers. Uh, we all require groceries. He uh, he had heard that this was going on, and he demanded a response and wanted to know the rationale. Well, Loblaw's Catherine Thomas responded to him, indicating that instead of offering a range of discounts between 30 and 50 percent on Serve Tonight products, those are the things that they sort of want to move off the shelves because they're nearing their their expiry. They were moving toward a more predictable and consistent offering. Well, that's fair if you don't want to offer a range of discounts and want to stick to a certain discount. But in this particular case, it's in the benefit of the grocer and not in the benefit of the consumer. Well, what do you have to say about that? And what do you think of grocery prices of late? There were some early signs because the the federal government had been uh, putting some added pressure on the grocery chains to do something about the cost of groceries. A lot of people uh, feel like there's, um, you know, they're being taken advantage of in many ways. And I understand uh, all of the uh, issues that, uh, you know, resulted from the pandemic and uh, uh supply chain issues and all of those things and uh, general inflation but a lot of people seem to think there's something kind of out of whack here and uh, as I indicated there were some early signs that consumers might see some relief but are you seeing any relief I picked up a few items the other day that just barely covered the bottom of the bag and it was for one meal 
Now, mind you, it was a steak and a few other things. It came to $86. I almost, well, I had a reaction. <laughs> I was like, what? $86 for, you know, what amounts to one meal. Um, do you think we'll ever see the price of groceries drop? It's extraordinary. Meanwhile, inflation rose to 3.4% in December. What are the biggest drivers? Well, no surprise here, housing and groceries. According to a senior economist with the TD Bank, uh, Leslie Preston, if you're looking for data to signal a rate cut is imminent, this isn't it. No kidding. Are measures imposed by the Bank of Canada to help control inflation adding to it? Those questions were being asked last year. Well, according to Stats Canada, the main contributor to inflation over the last year was mortgage interest costs followed by rent. And uh, not far behind groceries, no doubt. Well, some economists say um, uh, one of the contributing factors is uh, the fact that Canada is stuck in what they're calling a population trap. There was a very interesting article in the Globe and Mail in in recent days. Uh, Increasing consideration is being given by Ottawa to place a cap on temporary residents who... It uh, has been argued are contributing to the housing crunch across the country and the um, federal immigration policy. Federal Immigration Minister Mark Miller admitted recently on question period that the volume of international students coming into Canada is disconcerting. And uh, his quote is, it's really a system that has gotten out of control. Uh, The federal government, of course, set some very ambitious immigration targets in recent years. But it's not just international students, some of whom are being brought in through unscrupulous recruiters, which is something that uh, um, our own immigration minister, Jerry Byrne, made reference to. Says it's not happening here, it's happening in some of the larger centres. But uh, temporary foreign workers as well. Bank of Nova Scotia chief economist Francois Perrault has suggested that policymakers may be making it too easy to hire foreign workers. As he put it, it's cheaper to bring people in rather than investing, and these are some of the policies that have been put in place to address what was a labor crunch. Do we still have that labor crunch? Is this contributing to a continued labor crunch? Um, It's... uh, Everything is interconnected, as we all know. Uh, If you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. And I think throughout all of this conversation, um, there's a fine um, line that has to be drawn. I mean, we all uh, welcome immigration, uh, but is it being done um, in the right ways and with the right focus? Uh, If you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. Well, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says there will be no extension on the deadline to repay SIBA loans. Those are the uh, um, bank loans, or not bank loans, those are the interest-free loans that the uh, Government of Canada was offering to some businesses who were were really having a hard time 
uh, with COVID recovery. And that's hard news for some of those businesses, many of which are in the hospitality in, uh, industry. So uh, not only are they trying to recover from the loss of um, um, income and revenue through uh, COVID restrictions that occurred, wow, almost four years ago. Can you just imagine? But also uh, high inflation, uh, inflation and, and changing customer habits as a result of increased inflation. Are you a business having a, a tough time? We rely rather heavily on um, the hospitality industry here in Newfoundland and Labrador. We have a, a burgeoning, growing, thriving hospitality industry here in Newfoundland and Labrador really working hard to build that even further. Uh, are you a business that had applied for a SIBA loan and now have to repay it? Um, how would an extension of that loan repayment have helped you? What happens now if you're affected? I'd like to hear from you. Well, uh, and as we were saying earlier, you know, all these things are inter interconnected. On the housing front, there's a real push towards greater housing density. But a recent VOCM question of the day suggested that while people agree, they don't want an apartment complex next door. So what's the solution? Well, it leads to a, a bigger question about how municipalities deal with needs as they arise. We have a story in VOCM News right now, Capital City to Vote on zoning changes to allow for more housing options. But the question is, um, is this the right approach for municipalities to simply decide as needs arise that they're going to start uh, rezoning? We hear about this all the time. It's always these, this kind of spot rezoning. Is it not time for municipalities to sit down and come up with um, um, long-term planning, rework their existing town plans rather than spot rezoning. The question is that um, how does this affect a, a person who either purchases a home or sets up a business uh, and they know that their investment uh, won't be affected by su a sudden change in plans? What if you build a home or buy a home and all of a sudden, you know, within a few years, the um, city decides to change the rezoning and all of a sudden you're in an industrial park. Uh, is that fair? If you buy a home in a residential area, is it fair to expect that the area you choose may suddenly be rezoned, affecting your property values or, or the enjoyment of that property? Anyway, if you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. Municipalities, like uh, everyone these days, is trying to deal with all of these uh, significant challenges. I'm not saying one thing is right or wrong. These are just questions we're throwing out there to see uh, if you have any thoughts and uh, anything else that happens to be on your mind, by all means do so. Uh, this is, by the way, David. You and I share an anniversary today. It's the anniversary of Snowmageddon. Four years. You remember those heady days, Dave, when we were stuck in here for days on end. We, we spent a night here. You were curled up out in that area of the building. I was curled up out in that area of the building. 
I can still see you <laughs> in the lunchroom uh, early on a, what was it? Oh my goodness, I can't even remember what days those were. It was a, like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, was that what it was? Yeah. Uh, a crowd of us came in with our bags packed, ready for the worst, as you say. And uh, yeah, we ended up uh, here uh, trying to keep people informed of what was going on for uh, a few days. It was like a marathon, but I, I look back on it fondly, I have to say. Uh, and uh, it was really a precursor. We all think of it now because at the time we were like, wow, this is impossible. What was it, eight days that the city, the capital city, was in a uh, state of emergency? The roads were closed. Other municipalities managed to get open earlier than that, but we had some unique challenges here, including um, you know, trying to get all the, the required equipment out to clear up the roads from that uh, a huge dumping of snow, but eight days it was. And um, uh, I just think back on it uh, fondly. It, it really helped to ground us. But we, we see it now in retrospect as um, the precursor to uh, COVID. So uh, anyway, if you have any uh, thoughts or memories about that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call as well. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we hope to hear from you. This is VOCM Open Line. The lines are now open. Now is your opportunity to give us a call. And we're back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off today. Well, we're going to go now to Nova Scotia to speak with a research program coordinator with the Agri-Food and Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, Janet Music. Hello. Good morning. How are you this morning? We're doing okay over here. No snow, no rain. So, uh, you know, just a nice day. Oh, lovely to hear. Well, if you're getting that, then there's hope for us. <laughs> we've, we've got a kind of a miserable day here right across Newfoundland and Labrador, but that's okay. It's not nothing we're not used to. This was, uh, uh, as we were saying off the top uh, four years ago, it, it was snowmageddon, so <laughs> things could be oh, worse. I remember long lineups at the grocery store. Long lineups at the grocery stores when they f f finally opened. Uh, but we wanted to talk to you this morning about something that, uh, uh, your colleague, uh, Sylvain Charlebois, uh, brought to light through uh, social media. And, of course, we'd been seeing this. People have been talking about it for some time. But he finally nailed down, I suppose, Loblaw on this one. And that is um, uh, cutting the discounted amount on uh, products nearing expiry from 50% uh, to 30%. What's going on there? Well, you know, it's it's probably not surprising to a lot of listeners that this is happening. I think people have been very cynical about behavior of Loblaws and some of their competitors for the last few years, certainly making uh, high profits when people are feeling the pinch at the grocery counter. And, you know, uh, you know, I try not to be too cynical here at the lab. You know, we try and, and try and get to the bottom of what's happening, but... Unfortunately, this seems like to be a completely cynical move by Loblaws, and uh, you know, it seems to be based on margins at this point, which is, which is not great. Uh, they say they want to um, move towards more predictability uh, and consistency in offering, which is an interesting answer because the percentage is actually based on the unit cost of the item being discounted. So. It's not like it would be inconsistent at 50 and consistent at 30, right? So, you know, I think uh, they're just acting like the villain, as they always seem to do, and uh, consumers are kind of being left out in the cold. 
It certainly struck a lot of people uh, as a, 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 an entirely cynical move. Um, I guess the question is, uh, you know, especially if you're trying to move these things off the shelves because, uh, you know, certain food products do have a hard uh, expiry date, uh, will this add to food waste? Absolutely. Absolutely it will. And so, you know, I think, uh, you know, if we think about specific products, so meat, for example, one of the most expensive things in the grocery cart and 50% off of a cut of meat that you can take home and, and throw in your freezer might be uh, make meat more valuable, that specific cut, whatever it may be, more valuable to a family who has to really make the most of their grocery dollars. And 30% might not cut it. Now, you know, we don't recommend anybody buy something that they're uncomfortable eating and, and meat tends to turn gray after a while and and people will forego the risk uh, if the price isn't right. And so that will absolutely add to food waste. It's funny you mentioned that because it was uh, just in recent weeks, as a matter of fact, I've noticed uh, while perusing the meat aisles that I'm seeing more and more of these items that are that gray color. That's right. And so everybody kind of has to judge for themselves their comfort level when it comes to buying food. Of course, we don't actually have an expiry date on most food items here in Canada. It's a best before date, which means the quality uh, is at its optimum before that specific date. There's only really a handful of products here that has an expiry date, and those tend to be medically necessary for you know infant formula or, or things like Ensure or Boost that people who are you know going through chemotherapy, for example, need to rely on for nutrients. But for the majority of products we should rely on our senses you know our sense of smell and our our, you know our sight and you know I think for a lot of people we just don't know Uh, you know we've moved away from that we're so reliant on the grocery store to give us information about what it is we're buying that we don't trust our own senses right and so I think people especially at meat when you know food poisoning is no joke uh, leave that meat there to kind of go bad and be thrown out. And the same is true of salads and the like, uh, because, uh, you know, there's all kinds of little pathogens that can uh, exist uh, on any of those, um, uh, you know, um, uh, types of items. So... um it, you mentioned off the top that this is kind of, you know, people are seeing this very cynically, but uh, are we starting to see grocery prices coming down or, or you know, what's happening, in, you know, in a bigger picture kind of uh, scenario? Well, in the bigger picture, you know, they released the inflation numbers uh, yesterday, I believe. They seem to be holding steady the same as they were in, in December. Uh, and we've actually written our big report. We put out an annual report on food prices And we predict food prices will stabilize, right? So we'll see, you know, that kind of average yearly inflation of about 2 to 2.5 on most items. Now, keep in mind, food prices are already elevated. So we're likely not going to see a return to pre-COVID prices. Uh, But what we'll see is a, a deceleration of the rise of prices, which is slightly different. I understand that. So people are really going to have to um, kind of forego shopping for convenience and maybe start doing a little bit more hunting for those value items. And so that may mean going to more than one grocery store if that's available in your community. And one of the things we hardly ever talk about is rural 
community uh, food insecurity, they often have less option in terms of going to the grocery store. Loblaws may be the only option for uh, many, many miles. And so those are some of the things that I think we we need to really look into a little bit more. Um, But certainly... Elevated prices will probably not continue to rise at such a sharp rate, uh, but they're probably not going to deflate uh, and go back to what they were before the pandemic. And you're right. Uh, when it comes to the uh, lack of competition, I suppose, in rural areas and I guess the added cost of getting supplies to some of those areas, I mean, we see it very uh, starkly here in Newfoundland and Labrador. You, you get, uh, you know, one uh, price in St. John's and you only need to drive an hour out the road. That's not very far and you'll see a very different kind of price. And we're not even talking about Labrador now. Mm, that's right. And we did a, a similar study here where, you know, we went to a rural place in Nova Scotia uh, and, you know, bought a Christmas meal, turkey and all of those fixings and did so again in the city and very different prices, very different prices. And and I think people don't realize that because we tend to just, uh, you know, go to one store. Now, people in rural communities absolutely realize that, but in the city, you know, we're kind of spoiled for choice. And I should preface that by saying Canada really as a whole is not spoiled for choice because we really only have five major players here. It's not like there's a ton of competition pushing down prices. And and I think that was another point that came up when we see Loblaws taking uh, steps uh, as, you know, kind of eliminating deeper discounts is that there's really no option for us. And so Loblaws said they wanted to maintain kind of competitiveness with Empire Sobeys and Metro, you know, they want to be on the same level as their competitors. Well, you know, if you only have five major players in an industry, what is an industry standard and then what is collusion, right? And so I think this is one of those things that Ottawa needs to step up and say, listen, what is actually going on here? And I I think, you know, Ottawa did get involved in the fall. They summoned retailer CEOs, uh, you know, like naughty school children to Ottawa to speak for themselves. But really, nothing came of that. And so what Canadians really need to see, consumers, rural consumers and urban consumers, we need to see some teeth. We need to see something, uh, you know, more than just this performance of caring about food prices. You know, there is a lot that could be done that wasn't. Uh, And I think people are just exasperated by what is going on in grocery retail with with cause. So what is going on in grocery retail? What are some of the main driving factors contributing to grocery prices? You know, it's interesting. Sylvan and I were chatting earlier and, and I said, you know, they make it so difficult to defend them, you know. Because in the grand scheme of things, food price inflation is a global phenomenon, right? And so it's not being led by Loblaws. It's not being led by Sobeys. What we're seeing is kind of a cumulative effect of the supply chain. And, and you know, the supply chain is really complicated. A lot of us can envision carrots, for example, growing in the field. Farmer picks the carrots and it gets on a truck and it arrives at Sobeys. But most things have a very complicated uh, journey from ground to plate, so to speak. And so what happens is, you know, with rising energy prices, for example, coming out of the conflict in Europe, 
every stop along the chain is being faced with these rising costs. And so those costs tend to add up and then they are passed on to the consumers. So depending on what it is you're actually buying, you're seeing an inflated rate for processors, for farmers, for shippers, for input costs, you know, and so for packaging costs. And so these things tend to drive up prices in Canada actually has one of the lower rates of food price inflation. So places like Japan, very high rates, Germany in the double digits. And we only really experienced that for a few months. So you can't really point to Loblaws and say, this is all your fault. But now having said all that, there are things that both Loblaws and the government could have done to stabilize prices sooner. So one of those ways is with so-called shrinkflation. So, you know, I think consumers are, are very savvy to this now where we once might not be. And that's where, you know, the package of cookies you buy is suddenly a lot smaller, but it's the same price. And so this is a way of effectively raising prices without sticker shock. Well, once an item becomes a certain size, uh, it shrinks down to a threshold, it's no longer considered a grocery item and is now considered a snack food and is taxed taxed by CRA. And so this is adding to food price inflation in Canada that could have been avoided uh, in October when they were talking about all the things they were going to do to stabilize prices, for example. And then, of course, the sticker situation that we're talking about today is one of those ways that Loblaws could have effectively maintained a lower price on certain products for consumers that need them, and they're foregoing that opportunity. So while the overall food price inflation is a global phenomenon, these small steps that could be very impactful for lower-income families or for people who just enjoy certain foods Uh, They weren't taken when they could have been. So, you know, I think, again, that adds to trust when it comes to retailers and it adds to that cynicism. And it's not it's not helpful to have uh, consumers not trusting retailers. It makes for a bad environment. And and we'll see come election election rhetoric if if they're going to put their money where their mouths are. And, and, you know, I'm I'm cynical myself about some of these things. Well, certainly. And, uh, you know, I notice myself and I am, it's, it's the talk. Everybody's talking about it. Absolutely. Everybody. We all need to eat. <laughs> it's necessary. And yet um, more and more I'm going to grocery stores with, you know, certain items in mind and walking out without them uh, because I'm simply not prepared to either pay for what I uh, need or uh, the size of it is so tiny. It's insulting. It's actually insulting. I feel insulted sometimes when I'm going through grocery store uh, aisles. I noticed the other day uh, something that I might normally have picked up. I looked at it. I looked at the size of it. I actually held it in my hands and laughed and put it back on the shelf and walked away. Um, it, you know, do you, do you hear more of these types of stories? Absolutely. And, and it's interesting, you know, because social media now is, is in many ways this kind of... Uh, democracy in action, so to speak, you know, and I think 
you know, even before the pandemic, we weren't talking about food and food issues at the at the frequency that we are now. We're constantly talking about food and food prices in the media, and I don't know that it was uh, very salient before uh, some of these things started happening. And, and people are posting pictures about it, and they're they're talking about it, and and they're sharing stories from one end of the country to the other in a way I don't think that we did before. And so in some ways that's very good. It's good that we're having this collective conversation because then it does uh, point to the governing body at the day to say, listen, this is an important issue for Canadians. It's not just about, uh, you know, geopolitical conflicts. It's not just about uh, vaccine mandates. There's these things that are, you know, the small things make up life, right? And so there's these things that people are really concerned about that impacts households immediately that need to be part of the national conversation. And so this is how that happens. And so I think in terms of being frustrated, I don't know if there's comfort in knowing that people in Newfoundland are are very frustrated and so are people in Nova Scotia. But I think for people who are looking at the bigger picture, to see all of this happening uh, on a national scale, it's important to note that because it's not a niche problem. It's a problem for everyone. It's a fascinating conversation. As, as you said, it affects every single one of us. And uh, uh, the Agri-Food and Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University is doing some excellent work there. Traditionally, um, we'd always heard that grocery stores had, in, had very thin margins. Is that still the case? Uh, because... Uh, I think this has been part of the conversation, has it not, that uh, it's very difficult to find out how much profit they're making? That's right. And so, you know, they're legally obligated to release their financial statements uh, every year. And we've looked at that in the past few years. But what they're not legally obligated is to break out uh, their items. So Loblaws uh, certainly sells more than just food, right? They have pharmacies. They have clothing, they have, in some cases, toys and and consumer household goods. And so they don't break those things apart. And so when they're saying, you know, our margins are very thin, you know, and people are saying, well, what about these record profits? You know, they're pointing at some of these larger items or some of these, you know, pharmaceutical items that do net a higher margin of profit. But, uh, you know, in terms of selling food, it's very expensive to run a grocery store. We're not talking about items that can live on the shelf for very long. There's a lot of loss and waste. And, you know, you're you're not getting from uh, one wholesaler. So in terms of vegetables, you may have a wholesaler that's providing you food, like Cisco, for example. But oftentimes you're going to very many vendors. And so you're negotiating individually with a lot of vendors. So you may remember, you know, two years ago, I think now, where PepsiCo was having a, a was with Loblaws. They were having a debate on prices and Loblaws stopped carrying Lay's potato chips, for example, because they were not able to make that negotiation on prices in the boardroom. Now, the grocery retailers would tell you that all of those conversations, whether it's with Loblaws or Empire Sobeys or who have you, 
those are proprietary and they're kept very close to the chest because they don't want to uh, have their competitors know what it is that they're doing in the boardroom. And and maybe that's the case. We, d- we just don't know because we're not on board with that. So food margins are very slim. So 2%, 4%, 5%, etc. When you compare that to something like a telecom or a, a Scotiabank had a 33% profit margin, uh, telecoms are around 10 to 15%, oil and gas in the high 20s, grocery retailers are at the low end of profit. Uh, but, you know, Aside maybe oil and gas, we need the food to live, right? So we can forego uh, cell phones or we can, uh, you know, exist on older cell phones. We can't do that on food. And so I think that conversation is often misses the point that, yes, they have low margins, but they're a necessity for life. So it's important that we keep holding their feet to the fire and asking these questions uh, because, you know, it's, you know, we could starve, right? And so... You know, I think uh, I don't want to defend them in some ways, you know, because their behavior is kind of poor when it comes to some of these things. But at the same time, yes, they do have uh, lower profit margins. Janet Music, Research Program Coordinator with the Agri-Food and Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. I do appreciate your time this morning. Lots of food for thought there. Pardon the pun. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Uh, your thoughts on anything that she's raised or has uh, has had to say? Uh, was it eye-opening for you? Uh, give us a call. Anything else on your mind? Here are the numbers to do so. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. And we're back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off today. And uh, wow, I know one thing. The emails have just blown up on the whole uh, grocery price issue. Uh, If you want to give us a call, I would encourage you to do so. And we do have some uh, 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 calls coming in. We're going now to Reg. You're on the air. Hi, Reg. Good morning, Lisa. I only want to take a minute or two. It's just about one, one or two items. I just want to touch, uh, just to touch basically on. And one is, um, I, I was listening to uh, the person from Dalhousie, and that's all wonderful. The studies are great, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, really, I don't know what's going to come of it. She's telling us, giving us information, but I don't know what good the information is because it sits on a shelf, it gets dusty sometime down the road, another commission or study will be done, it will sit on the shelf, it will get dusty, and so on and so on and so on. But that's one thing, and until until we, the consumers, somehow get in a, get ourselves in a position, or even individually voice our opinions to the people who want to get elected, and not the government, but the people who want to get elected, to do something about it. She said herself a minute ago that uh, a certain uh, organization, they got together with government, and really nothing came of it, and nothing will come of it. Let me give you an example. And I'm, I'm not ta- I'm, to say across Canada really doesn't mean anything. You can talk anywhere, any. It's all the same. The basic problem is the greed. Nothing else but sheer greed. It's not supply and demand. It's none of these things. 
COVID has been, has been has been somewhat eased, if not, I won't say gone, but the effects of it have have practically dissipated. For argument's sake, my family, there are four four in my family who are celiac. Bread, a loaf of bread, which is approximately 40 percent in size of a regular loaf of bread. Prior to COVID, it was seven dollars. It is seven to eight dollars. Now it is ten to twelve. I would like to have any university across Canada in this universe tell me the reason for that. Now then, I. As for local, I went into a local supermarket chain uh, just recently. They had bananas on. I looked at the bananas. They weren't overripe. They weren't speckled. They were black. Price, 99 cents. Black bananas. I asked the cashier, are these marked down? Nope. Just a one-word snapping. Nope. Now, I'm sorry I didn't take a picture. From now on, so if that particular supermarket chain knows, from now on I will be taking pictures and posting them. I would have love for somebody in television who have to be able to take those pictures of black bananas, 99 cents. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, bananas were always a, uh, a staple you could get for a relatively low cost. And 99 cents, now, albeit you said they were black, but uh, I've seen bananas now well over a dollar each. It's unbelievable. Yeah, but but that's that's a normal banana dollar each. But you're talking black that they would, would well, the only people that would buy these are people, uh, banana bread makers. You know, yeah, they, yeah. they want the overripe sweet banana. But here you have them on the shelf, black, not not one or two, every single solitary one. And the excuse was, well, it was windy. The ships never got in. Well, so what? You're going to sell a banana, a rotten banana for 99 cents? Now, the, the lady from Dalhousie was talking about how they, how they are, you know, spoilage, et cetera. Are you trying to tell me that, that, that the chains do not gear calculate their loss due to spoilage etc etc in the in the in the resale price that's nonsense to, to, to that kind of a statement but anyway my my final my my other another statement is I went to a, a supermarket we buy a particular type of cheese slices I like them with a bagel however I had to put them back in the shelf I looked at it and I said well there's something wrong here and no, I'm sorry, I'm ahead of my story here. I did bring them home. We did open them. You know that the cheese slice was not as thick as the wrapping. <laughs> now we're talking about downsizing. Wow, yeah. Okay. And now, they find all cheese, kinds of I interesting could, ways to do that, yeah. Yeah, and I could not really peel that, that cheese off of the, uh, cell, you know, the individual cellophane wrapping. Okay, that's that's my point. On, now, that's local. That has nothing to do with lab laws or anything. That's the local pe- people. The other thing is government. If any consumer expects the government is going to do anything for them with by way of prices, they're living in a dream world. These government official uh, 
electorate body well, like we have here are MPs, MHAs, they are relying on Loblaws, on Sobies, etc., 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 for their political donations to get elected. So if you're taking the Queen's shilling, you have to fight the Queen's battle, and in fact, you are owned. And really, Lisa, that's where I am. And I would, I would really like to see the total populace of Canada just rise up and really take control of everything which they should. We are on a board of directors here in Canada that hire people, and they are called members of parliament, mem- uh, member, uh, members of the House of Assembly or legislature, mayors and councillors. They are our employees unless we, the board of directors, can somehow get rid of this party mentality and look towards ourselves to protect ourselves practically against these people, we're, we're going to be in sad shape because we are the people. But I'll say this, one, this thing for Abe Lincoln. He was true. You can fool all of the people some of the time. Reg, I mean, that's, all, that's all I've got to say. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. All right. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, and when we come back, we hope to hear from you. And we are back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly. Uh, and we're going to go now to uh, Jeff LeDrew of Jumping Bean. Hello, Jeff. Hey, Linda. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Oh, not too bad. Not too bad. What's on your mind this morning? Oh, I just wanted to chime in on the on the food aspect and then the increases. Like obviously we're uh, we're a manufacturer here in Newfoundland, so we import the raw coffee beans and roast them and do all that magic in order to try to get it to grocery retail. But they're just from uh, I mean I'm also have four kids, so I mean it's just crazy amount of the I mean amount of increases. But there was a time prior to COVID when. Um, you could actually implement price increases to try to get your product higher just to, to compensate on the commodity costs. So what happened is during at the beginning of COVID, uh, as the commodities increased and oil increased and ga- gas and coffee, everything increased in the way of the commodities, there was a hold on price increases. And there's actually trying to hold prices for so long, almost over a year, whereby we were actually selling in that, you know, losing money on every every pound of coffee we sold to the retailer, let's just say. And because of the price increase um, sort of cap or hold on it. And then the flood the floodgates opened up and you've seen a lot of people just hold back to not even sell product into the either, you know, because you just can't compensate for uh, losing money on the product, right? So basically then there was a big snap in prices and that's when pretty well the sticker shock pretty well got to most of the consumers. And uh, part of it was that, that impact of how quickly prices moved at that one point versus it gradually moving with, with the way commodities moved. And from our perspective, like... So that we was created by government? Is that what you're saying? No, not created by government. It was probably more by the retailers trying to hold back prime, uh, price increases primarily uh, just in around 2019, you know, 20, late 2019 COVID area, right? And they were holding back, holding back, and then it pretty well, there was no way to keep up with the shipping rates and basically the commodity costs and the packaging doubled. And, you know, that from a manufacturing perspective, it was extremely difficult to even manage uh, that because we had, you know, we couldn't, he couldn't even implement a price increase to cover the cost of how it increased so quickly. 
But to get back to just some of the uh, the comments about what well, the price on margins and stuff, it's average retailer. I mean, it's on, they have different different categories that they cut, they charge different prices on. So like certain categories, it might be thirty percent. Certain categories, maybe the numbers she's talking about. But I, I think the numbers that are presented are probably overall business cost numbers versus the uh, profit margin on certain products. You know what I mean? And they don't they calculate these numbers from the way it emerges with incorporating all their loss and their distribution and all the rest of it. Because for us, you know, even just distribution to get product in the Newfoundland, process it and get it back out to the rest of the country. I mean, it's cost us probably, uh, you know, ten uh, percent of the product, which is sometimes the margin you can only make on a, on a particular product. So, it, uh, it, you know, it's it's there's so many facets to it. It's really hard from the, even the consumer or people buying it on the day to day just to just you know to understand where the, all these impacts are coming from, especially from freight. I mean, with the fuel surcharges and now the carbon tax on fuel and stuff as well. Like, what used to charge probably let's say you know uh, thirty cents a pound of coffee for freight is now fifty cents a pound of coffee for freight. So you got to add that twice for me, you know, get it into the province, get it out of the province. And then the commodity went from uh, pretty well almost, not doubled, but it went up by 60%. And then, you know, all when you add that back in, and by the time you get it to the retailer, that's just, you're seeing such an inflated, you know, inflated pricing. So it's it's, it's not e- it's not easy. I mean, not, you know, it's um, you know they could probably take less margin on certain categories in order to ease the pain. But I mean, the, the, the feds are not going to be able to do much about you know about retailers because most of these multinational companies have all the big listings. You know, if it's Nestle or Kraft, I mean, they buy sections and they they also blend their margins across certain products. So they might have one margin on co- coffee, and they're also Nestle bars or chocolate or whatever, and they change their margins over there, you know, to basically compensate for one side or the other in order to make their overall profit margin, like from a Nestle or Kraft perspective, right? So how do you, yeah. someone like you, how do you adjust for that in your in your uh, business plan? Because uh, all business owners have to have a business plan. I mean, you know, things have been thrown out the window in the last yeah. number of years, it seems. How do you plan a business around that? You don't. I mean, like I said, we, you know, I mean, it came to a point where we said we can't ship anymore. We're not going to ship your product. <laughs> Basically, it's just, you know, if you don't change the price, then we can't ship it. So that's all to it. Like, you know what I mean? We sell fair trade organic products, so it's, it's a bit different. We actually got a minimum price that the, the farmer will make. But, like, this is the other side of it is that, you know, these commodities, I mean, in countries like, uh, you know, Colombia or whatever, if you're not buying fair trade, you can you can also manipulate some of the prices that way. So you, there's no planning for it. Like what happened to me, I was selling into one retailer to the point where I, was not, I, either, I would have stopped selling and just cut it out or we would lose the business, you know what I mean? So it was, uh, you know, you try to keep, you can't lose these retailers because they're, they're extremely hard to get in. And not to mention, like for me to list a product across the country, one SKU, so they're in the, more in the real estate business, it cost me two probably, well, anyway, it cost me a, lot, uh, a triple digit or six digit number to list one product across the country, you know, in any shelf space, right? And you do that times four or six or however many products you got. And that's only guaranteed for a year. And if nobody buys it, then you're out of luck. So it's uh, it's extremely difficult to manage both, you know, uh, just staying on shelf uh, and not, not to mention you have the discount as well in order to get people to buy because most people buy on discount. So it's uh, we put on like air mile specials and then those air miles get discounted back off our product margin, right? So if we sell a product in, then in every air mile is like, I don't know, 50 cents or something. So, you you know, when you book with those air miles, that comes off our, you know, comes off our bill pretty well to the, to the retailer and then they give you the air mile or whatever the product uh, 
uh, promotion may be. And same thing goes for discounts. If you do two for nine ninety nine or whatever, then or you know fourteen, whatever the number is, that discount is pretty well. You plan your ad budget, and then when you sell in, it gets an it gets an off case discount on your uh, on your on your profit. Basically, if you uh, if if whatever profit you have there, in order to be able to uh, to be able to try to sell more, because if you don't sell, then you're out. So basically, if people don't buy it, or if they buy like you know multinational companies, you know the Crafts and the Nestle's and the even the big brands or whatever that that put promotions on, like you know Tim Hortons is obviously owned by a Brazilian company, not really Canadian, and and Lavazza, which was, or Kicking Horse was a you know Canadian company that was owned by an Italian company. So a lot of these companies are multinationals and they can blend it across the world, right? Like I mean, their business is bigger than Jumping Me. We're just a small one, you know, uh, one manufacturer in the middle of you know manufacturing Mount Pearl but again like it's not like we only got one business and that's the Canadian business or the Atlantic Canadian business right so it's uh it's not easy no. no, indeed. And I mean, uh, it's no surprise to anyone that business owners have to think on their feet on a regular basis and, and be ahead of the curve and all of those things. But did you ever imagine that you'd have to be this nimble? Uh, no, it's uh, it's been it's been ta- it's been a tangle. Like I said, it's um, it's not easy. I mean, we try to. It's hard to get the message out there. It just you know, it's so difficult. People are walking. You know, any your average consumer walks down the shelf, and you know, the, the really shrinkflation is like the bag doesn't necessarily appear to what it is either. It might look like the same bag size. Like this is, I couldn't change my price. So instead of shrinkflation, I always sold at a pound of coffee. So I would have loved to cut the price to third or not love, but I would have, you know, would have one of the strategies would have been take the product from a pound to three forty gram which is 90 percent of the companies out there sell 340 grams of coffee versus 454 grams of coffee so that was the trick they all moved it lower got the price point relatively around the same area for the, for a less amount of product but like for me to do that i would have to re-rationalize all my SKUs with the big with the big retailers probably play a new listing fees and then create new UPCs and new packaging and all that, and then re-implement that across the country. You know what I mean? So it's a uh, it's super hard. Like you know what I mean? So it's, we did price increases. So we sell a pound of coffee, and we may look higher, but like it's probably you're still if you look the price per pound. And some retailers are good. They'll put like the price per hundred grams on the on the listing. So it's best if consumers look on the tag, and it'll say your price per gram or you know what I mean. I think a lot of times they do a meat and everything else too, but they do it all across the store now, and they put a price yeah. per gram or a price per pot or a price per whatever right yeah our uh, one of our listeners has just sent an email saying that that's where you really have to look you have to look at the yeah. at the price per weight yeah that's the trick yeah you got to try to look at the price per weight and then make it an out you know make a you know there's going to be some of it is around brand and taste and all the rest of it and you make a choice but it's uh it is like that price per pound or price per 100 grams you usually got it in 100 grams or something it's usually the number that they use and how well, yeah, so, it's, 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 so given all of that uh how you doing <laughs> oh, we're doing all, we're doing all right i mean we've managed through this price increase our prices had to go up i mean obviously it's, we're i was always lowest in the market for the product that we were selling and that's because we never had distribution like proper distribution but what layers on this as a manufacturer I have to layer on a sales, a national sales company, which they'd go out and sell the product into these retailers. And then I have to add on distribution. So we have a distribution company in Ontario now that we sell, we ship our product to in order to do national business. So they take another huge chunk of it. And then we have a percentage of that margin that's for marketing, which is like basically air miles or uh, uh, two for one, you know, whatever, not two for one. But, um, you know, when you buy two, you get 25% off or whatever the case may be. So it, uh, we're doing good. I mean, we're doing all right. It's, uh, you know, pretty appreciate the support of everybody. I mean, we obviously got the stores, which help as well. So, I mean, it helps from the branding. But to get it across the country to make it a national brand is extremely tough to fight up against the, the big brands. And now you see more of the, even the commercial brands like the 
competition the Tim Hortons the McDonald's and the likes and Starbucks trying to play into the same category I mean they were, they were never in the in the coffee category for you know if you look back in these I don't know late 2000s let's say you know we wouldn't have seen Tim Hortons or McDonald's in the coffee in the grocery coffee category and now you see more big brands like even Swiss Chalet or I don't know some other brands like throw it get in the middle of grocery so you're you're starting to see more brands in the store more so than current like actual traditional grocery brands you know what I mean so it's been uh it's always a challenge because you got to stay on shelf and the only way to stay on shelf is the customers to buy it so that's it. I mean, it's not easy, but we're there. We're still doing it. Well, Jeff, I really appreciate your perspective on all of this and uh, some of the uh, very complicated um, factors that uh, play into how you get that product on your shelves and what price you put on them. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Hey, no worries. Yeah, and like I said, just trying to pass along the, the detail. It's hard uh, to really do it. I mean, it takes so long to speak about it and to really understand the D into each individual product. But anyway, just uh, hang in there. It's not easy. Hopefully, we'll see some reduction in prices across the board. Appreciate that, Jeff. Thank you. See ya. All bye. right. Bye-bye. And Jeff uh, LeDrew, of course, is the owner of uh, Jumping Bean Coffee. Uh, we're up to news time now with VOCM's Brian Medora. When we come back, we're going to speak with uh, Tom Badcock about uh, the process uh, require, uh, required to go get that bed sitting room at the hub that he's been trying to do. Um, you're listening to VOCM Open Line. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. And we are back on VOCM Open Line. Now is your opportunity to give us a call. We have a few lines open. We're going to go now to Tom Badcock. You're on the air. Hello, Tom. Hello. Hi. So what a difference a few months makes. Uh, last time you and I spoke on this uh, program, uh, you were feeling very defeated. But uh, things are looking up. What's going on? Well, you know, when, when David called me this morning, uh the phone has to stop this morning ring and I thought it was somebody else saying they want to put your name on the list to move in. So uh, I was rather pleased that it wasn't that person. Uh, yes, the things have started to move forward. Um, uh, I guess uh, all of a sudden everything happens at the same time because I sent a text to our MHA, John Abbott, yesterday and I said, John, can somebody do something for us, please? And the next thing I know, uh, I get a call from somebody, from uh, a gentleman from Newfoundland Labrador Housing. It says, uh, send me your invoice for the price it costs to uh, to get the plans for this place, and we'll address that. And then I understand from dealing with the city, uh, they had their meeting yesterday, and uh, council itself uh, approved our rezoning. Uh, and, of course, we have that process to go through. So it looks like the wheels are finally starting to turn. Uh, this whole process, of course, has been an exercise in trying to get people to do things. And, and it seems like the city of St. John's uh, are the ones that seem to be moving the ball forward the quickest. Uh, hopefully now that, that the city is moving quickly, the province uh, will also start to, uh, to move the project forward because, as you've heard, uh, as you've reported on your, on your news, this, this is great. It's seven units. It's, uh, it'll free up seven other units throughout the city of the people are in that are probably too large for them, one or two bedroom units. Uh, so it is a multiplier effect here, which hopefully will, will help everybody. 
So for the benefit of our listeners, if we can back up just for a moment, uh, you're with the hub, of course. What was your what was your proposal? What was your plan? What were you hoping to do there? Well, we, we, we have some office space uh, that's uh, been vacant for a while, vacant for four or five months. And, of course, we, we had the issues around the hub where uh, people were sleeping under our ramp in the nighttime. Uh, we're in the center city where, you know, you got the sex workers around our building, you got the homeless around our building, and I, I sat down one day and I said, my goodness, why don't we put something here in this space? And we looked at it, and I spoke to uh, one of my tenants who happens to be uh, a draftsman, and I said, Robert, you know, can we get a plan here? Let me have a look at it. So I get a plan uh, for seven bed-sitting units from Robert, and then I said, okay, let's get the process going. What do I need to do? Uh, so I go to Newfoundland Labrador Housing, I go to our MHA, I go to the feds, I go to everybody that I think I can contact to try and get the process going. Everybody loves the idea. They all came to the house, to the, to the hub, had a free meal with us, and they loved the idea, loved the plan. Where'd you come up with this? And uh, okay, great, let's move ahead with this. And then all of a sudden, everything comes to a grinding halt. And there we are again. We basically get seven bed sitting uh, room units. Uh, basically design, I'm a retired officer from the, from the Air Force, and the design is basically what used to be our quarters, where we had a bunch of rooms around an area with a TV room and a kitchen and things of this nature, uh, and laundry facilities, and, uh, you know, just just good, comfortable housing for people that all they need is just a place to sleep, a place to socialize and, 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 and live. So that's our plan, and hopefully now it will start moving forward. So it's not approved yet. Uh, council is just uh, starting these uh, preliminary stages in, uh, in, in changing the zoning rules in that area. So what, what sort of hoops do you need to jump through now? What needs to happen? Well, we need the, the city of St. John's to go through. I think it's a public hearing thing they need to go through. So uh, I don't think that'll be an issue. I think that the people that surround the hub are reasonable people. They understand. Like when, I, when Turnings first moved into the hub 15 years ago, man, oh, man, the objections I had because they felt all the drug people would be coming to Turnings. Well, that's never happened. You know, people need their facility there so that's never been an issue with them and this this is just you know we're surrounded by houses we have a, a city of st john's housing unit next to us so i don't think that'll be a problem um the the, the after the city approves it then it comes to the province the province needs to give us the funding we we, we don't have the funding because we're a, we're a charity we 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 haven't got the proverbial pot to pee in uh, so we need funding to come from the government, uh, and if they have to go to the feds to get support, then they'll do that. Uh, the Newfoundland Labrador Housing uh, gentleman I'm working with uh, there, he's he's been he's been helping. He's been trying to be proactive with this. So that's the process: is to now that we know the city will move ahead and it'll eventually get approved, then it's up to the province to to come give us the funding, and then we'll we'll get the work done as quickly as possible and get people moved in here. And the city uh, accelerating this again by not necessarily having a public hearing, but uh, changing it to a public notification, how will that impact you? Well, that, that's great. That, that's wonderful. I, I think that's, 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 the secret. That's, that's the people down there. You know, you got Sheila, 
And I got Ron down there. I've always been on site. I've always been big supporters of the hub. Uh, and, you know, they're people that I have on speed dial. And, and I can call them, and they move things forward. Both Sheila and Ron, and you heard them, I think, on your program, uh, how supportive they are. And they, they understand this. You know, they understand that we need this, this type of housing for people. Goodness gracious, as you know, all that's been in the news the last little while is the ten cities, the people living on the streets, and the people living in, in rat-infested, insect-infested uh, housing units and things. And, and man, oh man, oh man, oh man, you know, I, I know there are people at their disadvantage, but you got to have a decent place to live. Goodness gracious. Uh, and this is what we're doing. And we're a charity. We have the space. And and let's do it. Let's move ahead. Let, let's fast track this. Let's get the people in there. And then once that's done, you know, I have other space in the building too. Uh, and and government representatives were at the building, and, and I showed them that. Like I, I have a big garage that we used to use for wheelchair repair at one time. That can become a one bedroom unit. I have four space on the third floor. That could become a one or two bedroom unit. So and it's and it's not like we're we're, we're a private company or something. We're a charity. We're, we're, we're a charity. So whatever we make goes back into the community. And we're not going to be charging these absorbent rents to people. Um, and we're going to have people on staff that need help. If you get people in there need a social worker, then we, we can have a social worker around or we can have people to help them. So no, I encourage government. Uh, this is a, this. As I said to the minister when I was speaking to him, I said, Minister, this is a legacy thing for you. This is people will remember you for this. Is that you were the one that started the process to put these type of units in the charities, and uh, hopefully he hears the message again, uh, loud uh, that that let's get moving with this. Let's not drag our feet and let's move ahead with it as quickly as we can. What difference will this make in that uh, neighborhood? You're talking about seven bed sitting rooms. Are they uh, going to be for men and women? How's that going to work? Well, what we're going to do and what, what I plan to do, uh, now I'm not God, so I can't make all the decisions on my own, but what I'd like to do is to be able to take applications from people and take all the applications and say, okay, guys, we've got 25 people here that want to move into these seven units, and we're going to bring them all to the hub and sit them in the room. I'm going to say, now, here you go. I want you to sit and talk with each other and meet with each other and, and kiss and hug and say, and at the end, okay, we're going to pick seven people and you're going to pick them. Because I don't want these people living in a unit where they hate the person next door, next to the next unit to them or sitting there watching TV and they're fighting over it. I want to be seven people that are compatible, you know, uh, so so that that's that's the initial plan. Now, I don't know, maybe maybe after... Uh, we get the thing built and done, government may say to us, okay, these are the people that we want to put into these things. I don't know. Uh, so that, all that part's up in the air. But I, I, I'm, I'm encouraging people not to be able to call me now and say we want to put on a list because we don't even know for sure whether this was built. But these are seven people in an area, almost like hotel rooms, uh, so they have to be compatible. You know, they, they they can't be people who every single day are dealing with conflicts between people. So uh, I want them to be happy and, and they'll basically live together as a big happy family. Well, Tom, do keep us up to date on uh, any progress there. Really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. And thank you, Dave, for calling. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Uh, and we've got uh, a, a road advisory. Hello, Richard. 
Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I mean, there's a Hyundai, a newish Hyundai off the road on Ruby Line, just next to the back line turnoff. The side of the car is damaged, there's no one in the car, there's a vehicle there now to assist, to the best of my knowledge. So a car off the road, uh, Ruby Line at where? Backline turnoff. Backline turnoff. Uh, and is it impeding traffic in any way? Uh, the stern of the car is kind of in the, uh, a little bit in the way, but you can, you know, slow down, you'll get around it easy enough. All right, good to know. And uh, what, what are the road conditions like out there? Slippery? Very slushy at the moment. Slushy. Lots of water on the road. Ah, okay. So no okay. signs of anyone there. Uh, does it appear as though anyone was injured? I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, the storm drains don't seem to be taking away the water. Okay. At all. All right. So is there a chance of flooding then? It's a possibility up there in some of the lower lower areas, I would think. Yeah. All right. So that's a car off the road, Ruby Line, near the back line turnoff, uh, back portion of the vehicle, you know, jutting out into the road just a bit. Uh, conditions slushy with lots of water on the road. Please use caution. Right. Richard, thank you. You're welcome. Alrighty. Bye-bye. And uh, when we come back, we hope to speak with you. This is VOCM Open Line. And we are back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly. We're going to go now to the Executive Director of CAUTNL, Nancy Reed. Hello, Nancy. Hi, Linda. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. Really excited today to be able to share some information with the listening public and uh, of an event that we've got coming up at the Coalition over the weekend. Oh, that's great. Tell um, us about it. Yeah, thanks, and thank you so much for letting me get on this morning to do this. Um, at the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities, of course, we represent uh, persons with disabilities from a uh, cross-disability systemic advocacy position. And uh, in that vein, uh, this year, uh, with the current by-election in the uh, area of Conception Bay, East Bell Island, we've been able to actually uh, arrange a question and answer session with all four candidates uh, in that by-election this, this, um, this time. And uh, we're going to be holding that question and answer uh, session um, on Sunday. And the question and answer session will be about issues relating to disabilities and the disabled community in our province today. So it's really, uh, really exciting for us. Really glad to be able to engage with the, the candidates in that space, give them an opportunity to let them, um, you know, speak to their position on a, various, a variety of topics that are current for our, our community, and uh, really giving, you know, voters in that uh, area, especially, an opportunity to make selections based on, uh, on you know, on, on what the candidates bring forward with their knowledge and understanding and ideas around uh, issues of disability. So uh, how will that be done? A Q&A session, you say. Is, oh, is, is that in person? Is it going to be virtual? Is it going to be purely online? How's that going to work? Well, we're, it's all of the above. <laughs> uh, we're doing this in the most accessible way that we can, we can imagine, as everything that we do, uh, we try to do it that way. What we're having is an in-person session. It will be held at the Holiday Inn uh, on 180 Portugal Cove Road, St. John's, and it starts sharp at 4.30. Uh, it is open to the general public. Anybody can come. I will say that for persons who want to come in person, we hope that you'll arrive and be seated before 4.30. The doors open at 4 for the event, so you can come in, get yourself seated. We've got coffee and water for individuals there, and uh, the, del the candidates and the 
questions will start at 4.30 sharp, and it's going to run from 4.30 to 6 p.m. Um, at the same time, though, individuals who choose not to come in person or can't come in person, we will also be holding this um, virtually. So we're going to have two platforms, if you want, of availability for folks to join virtually. Um, you will be able to connect through a Zoom webinar and uh, view, you know, the whole the whole thing live at that time. There will be also a live stream from our YouTube channel, so folks can also view the proceedings in that way. All of the whichever way you join, you will be able to um, to, to view the event also using American Sign Language interpretation. Interpreters will be in the room, and that will be available in the virtual platforms as well. And as well, in the virtual platforms, through the Zoom um, link page, there will be live captioning at the same time on the screen. So if you're a person who uses live captioning uh, to help you understand the, the, the dialogue, that will be enabled in the, in the space as well. So we hope that folks, you know, within the writing can join in whichever way they choose. Uh, but also it's available to people you know, sort of the province. And while this this by-election obviously is specific to that particular area, the, con the concerns, the questions, the thinking uh, is really relevant to people with disabilities throughout our province. So it's really a great opportunity for persons with disabilities and the general public to really have a better understanding of some of the concerns, the questions, even thinking about it in terms of if this were a general election, what kinds of questions should I be asking of you know candidates who'd be knocking on my door? What kinds of things are we thinking about in the community? What's really important to the broader community of persons with disabilities? at this time. And in addition to that, Linda, we, um, that, that will take up the first hour of the session. Um, after that hour, we hope that we'll have some questions from the general audience as well. So if there are specific disability concerns uh, in, in the audience, you know, we, we hope to be able to uh, ask those, to, or certainly some of those, to the candidates at that time. Um, in that same space, if persons who are attending virtually would like to submit questions in advance, uh, they can certainly do that and send it to our email, and I'll give it now. It's info, I-N-F-O, at codnl.ca, or you can call us at 722-7011. 722-7011? Right, that's in 709 area code. That's right. our, our number. I will tell you that uh, you will likely get a machine. Please leave a message. Uh, you know, it's, it's often busy time, and so a machine may pick up, but please leave a message there. It's continuously checked and and, not, and, uh, and, cons and considered. Um, I will also say that right now, the information that I'm providing and the links to the, uh, to the event virtually are on the front page of our website. So if anybody wants more information or wants to be able to access that um, on Sunday, so at 4.30, it will go live. And you can click one of the two links that are available on the front page of our website. So it's just cotinl.ca, and, uh, and you can click the, the Zoom link or the YouTube channel, and either way, uh, you will join to the meeting there. So, yeah, I was going to ask you about the format, but you say the questions will already, I, I guess, on a more generic or broad uh, level, be ones that of, are of interest to the wider community, and then you'll open up the floor, so to speak, uh, right. for questions from the audience? 
Correct. Um, the, the session is being moderated by Marie Ryan, and Marie Ryan is certainly a well-known individual um, in the in the province. Um, Marie um, has extensive experience as a consultant. Uh, right now, she's she's been with Gus Gilroy's Atlantic office for more than 20 years, but she's also an advocate and has been a, a very vocal and and and, and uh, advocate for persons with disabilities, especially around access inclusion for more than 30 years, and is well known uh, nationally as well as provincially. As you and done some international work. So Marie is going to be a uh, moderator for the, for the session, and uh, she will um, be asking uh, several questions that um, the coalition that my, my team has come up with. Those questions are um, around subject areas that I've already, I guess, provided uh, to the candidates that, you know, the areas to be considering for their, you know, different in their preparation. And some of those areas include um, accessible and affordable housing for persons with disabilities. You know, we talk about housing right now, and it's certainly, you know, something that's being discussed for, for many good reasons. But when we think about that with the disability lens, it really gives you another consideration of how persons with disabilities are facing uh, accessible and affording housing challenges as well. Uh, we also want to talk about um, the uh, position of the disability advocate, which has been an ongoing consideration in our community. Uh, also, the definition of persons with disabilities that is being used in various pieces of provincial legislation. And we've been very vocal about that in media in recent months, as well as um, you know just general accessibility and barriers that persons with disabilities continue to face in accessibility in the environment. And that's not only from a physical mobility perspective, but also uh, from a you know a cross disability perspective. And we think about the built environment. We certainly need public buildings. We also mean in transportation systems and the like. So those are the subject areas, I guess, that we've identified from a cross-disability nature that have been current and are really pressing for many people with disabilities. But again, we, we want to be able to open the floor so that if a person has a disability-specific question that they want to raise, we really hope to be able to find an opportunity to share at least some of those questions with the candidates so that they can, they can respond in that way. Nancy Reed, I really appreciate you uh, informing us of this. Uh, so it is this Sunday, 4.30. Do people have register ahead of time? Uh, no. Uh, for the in-person session, there is no registration or anything like that. Please come. Uh, you know, I mean, all the, the typical, you know, uh, considerations included. Um, we will ask that people come and be seated before 4.30. The doors open at 4 for the, for the live in-person event, again, at the uh, Holiday Inn Portugal Co. Road. And uh, it's in Salon D, room Salon D at that space. And uh, for the registration for the virtual event, again, you can find the links um, on our website. It will certainly be available through social media as well. Um, but uh, to join the Zoom event, you click on the link and it will ask you for your email and your name, and then it will give you access. And to join the YouTube, uh, you know, you're just, you're just watching a link that you'd see on YouTube, so you don't need to register at all. Nancy, appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Um, and we are going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to get a little update on Kane's Quest coming up right after this. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. And we are back. We're going to go now to Chris Lacey with Kane's Quest. Hello, Chris. Good morning. How's it going? Hey, good. How are you? 
I'm doing great, thanks. That's good. A nice bit of snow coming for Labrador. Yes, finally. We can definitely, uh, we definitely need it. Well, yeah, and that's raising some more questions, I suppose, about uh, because we know what happened last year with that, uh, you know, freakish warm spell. Um, so are, are there any concerns about, um, you know, weather conditions leading into uh, this year's race? Well, just there's concerns every race with the weather because the weather is so unpredictable in Labrador up in the north here. And it does it could be this way any year. So we always plan accordingly based on the weather. We never really have anything we'll say set in stone and finalized, you know, until basically race starts. So yeah, there's concerns, but it's not they're not heavy concerns. There's not something right now that we're um, taking into major consideration because so much can change in a month. We all know that. I mean, it, it's changed in in hours last year. So we have so much time to uh, to still plan. Um, so we're we're taking everything into consideration, and it's it's always part of our planning process and, and how we we make our plans and when we, when do we start, when do we do things, and all that stuff. So it's always in our mind. Yep. Right. So I guess you have a lot of contingencies to consider. Well, we do have contingencies in place for sure, but I, there's most of the the best thing about our race is we don't give anybody a direct route to go. You know what I mean? Like we don't tell everybody you must must go this way. The only place we do that is through the Mealy Mountain Parks, and that is in collaboration with Parks Canada and the, or the stakeholders that are in, you know near and dear to that that uh, park, so that we don't interrupt any wildlife and uh, other things like that. So that's the only way the only way on the race that we actually tell you that you must go there. Um, everything else is up to the racer. So if the racer seems that this area is not fit or not fast, he, there might be another route around. There are some routes, I'm sure, on, on the race route that uh, there's only one way to go just based on terrain and stuff. But, you know, for the most part, the race route is completely open and, and up to the racer on how they choose to uh, to pick their way through the, to the wilderness. Right. It's up to the wits of the participants. It's up to the wits of the participant and make sure that they can do what they can do, how well they can read a GPS and navigate through the land. And that's, you know, that's what makes our race so unique and so so in, enjoyable, in my opinion, it gets to the endurance of the man and machine, and, and it puts all your skills and, and mindsets to test, right? So what's the interest been like with this quick turnaround? Uh, are you getting a lot of um, uh, participation from, you know, all over North America and Europe? Yeah, so we have gotten a lot of participation from North America. We got one racer from the U.S. this year. We have no none other from overseas or anywhere. But uh, Team Finland, Wild Nordic Finland, have still been in contact with us, and they're still we're still talking to them and stuff. So it's not something that they're shying away from. It's just they couldn't make it this year. Just the logistics from them getting overseas. It takes it takes almost nine months for them to ship their sleds and everything over for the race anyway. So by the time they got back, they didn't even have enough time to prepare for this race to make it back anyway. So. It's not that they're not interested. It's just, I think, from a logistics side of things, they just couldn't make it back. So uh, we are having a lot of interest, a lot of hype, and a lot of stuff. And, uh, yeah, I think 2024 is going to be very successful. Excellent. And uh, people, you know, can you feel the excitement? Is it starting to build? The excitement is starting to build for sure. Yeah, the volunteers are starting to call. Phones are going off the hook at the office. We got um, sponsors that are starting to come at us a little bit. Different people, we're different television uh Series people are coming at us like this is the biggest year yet that since I've been on, involved in Kane's Quest in 2020 and I've raced in 2016 and this is so far in my personal opinion the biggest year when it comes to hype around Kane's Quest right now. And is it because of you know some of the difficulties you faced last year that like gave it a higher profile if you know what I'm trying to say? I really do think it was that I think last year's upset and weather and and you know the worries and the the, the this and the that and the risks and everything that was associated with last year I do think that that brought us to a different map, to a different place, got attention to different people. And uh, because of that, I, I, do, I do feel that they played a major part in getting us where we are.
this year. So are you suggesting that you got some major networks in, interested in covering this? Uh, not some major ones. We got um, Snowmobile Television coming back with us. Uh, they were there last race, and they were there a couple races before. So, so like, it's not coming back. But uh, we do have some interest in some in some people that are coming coming uh, coming out of the woodwork for sure. Yeah. And I mean, this fits right into that niche. I mean, we've all seen uh, the 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 increased interest in adventure tourism. Yes. Yep. And that's kind of where some of these some of these people that have come out to reach us is, is going towards the, that adventure tourism, what Labrador can bring to the world and from the tourism side of things and, and stuff like that. So it, stay tuned. There's not there's not a lot of details I want to give it right now, but uh, there is some exciting things coming. Ooh, my little journalistic ears are pricked up. Um, so uh, you've got this happening now this year. Um, normally it's every two years. Uh, so does that mean you're going to have a race next year or are we going to see it in another two years time? You'll see it another two years' time, 2026. And just if anybody does anything or follows us right to eight, that 2026 will be our 20th year. So it's oh, a big wow. year for James Quest. Oh, yeah, big year for sure. So um, what's the time frame looking like now? When, when's the, the official start date? So the official start date is March 3rd, the Sunday. Um, everything starts around here on the 28th of February. We have racer sign-in, and then we'll have gear check night. We have fan night on the 28th, and we got our opening ceremonies on March 1st. And Saturday, we take a little breather for teams to just have a, get, get everything ready, prepped and peeled, and then we'll start 10 a.m. Sunday morning. And you've got a, an extra day in there to celebrate and get ready, <laughs> the 29th. Yeah, we're, we're changed. Yeah, with the leap years helping us a little, and we're changing it up this year. We're doing the opening ceremonies at the beginning, so all racers will have the ability to be at the event, celebrate with their friends, their support teams, their, their co-racers, and uh, everything like that. So instead of having to wait around or if they scratch, they can, you know, if something in the event they can't finish the race, they don't have to wait around in Labrador to and, and to incur extra expense just to celebrate with the racers. So we're going to give them that at the beginning of the race this time based on racer feedback and uh, listening to what they want and what they need and, and what makes sense. So uh, we, we're going to try that out this year. And so the leap year also helped us with that because it gives us an extra day for planning. So unfortunately, Team Nordic uh, Finland, who have a dedicated fan base in Labrador, not going to make it this year. Any other fan favorites coming back? Uh, team main race is coming back. Um, we have a couple um, local teams around, like in Cheshire I know that we have some some inner teams that are fan favorites that are coming back. We have a couple local teams that are coming back. And uh, to be honest, I don't think there's a team out there that's not a fan favorite. <laughs> so just to pinpoint one over the other, I'm not sure I can, you know, I I think while Nordic Finland got a lot of things coming from Europe and stuff, but uh, I think uh, watching our Facebook page and stuff, I think every team has a, a million fans. And Labrador really gets behind this in a big kind of way. Oh, does it ever. If it wasn't for the volunteers and the camaraderie of all the Labrador and how it just comes together as one during this race, this race would never happen. The communities are so endeavoring to our, our racers. They open their arms and they just give everybody everything. And the, the hospitality in, in all of Labrador during this race is, is actually unprecedented. Like I, don't, I would put it up against anywhere in the world on how good Labrador is and our to all our racers and our fans and our and everything is just crazy. So some much needed and uh, much um, welcomed uh, snow coming your way today and into the, to the next couple of days, actually. Um, so what kind of conditions do racers prefer? Uh, I would say racers prefer a lot of like a lot of snow, a lot of so the, the obstacles are covered, a lot of ice, so they can go come where they want. They don't have to worry about open water or thin ice or dangers and stuff like that. I would say that uh, 
I think it was 2018 was one of the fastest races we had with with prime conditions where snow conditions were favorable. There was very little wind and stuff, so drifts and different things that would would slow you down on the lakes weren't so high, and it just made for a very fast race. And the participants know their snow. Yes, that's right. So the worry of the technicality side of things is definitely a little down because they know there's snow. There's no the obstacles are covered. They definitely have to not be so navigationally paying attention to stuff, right? Do you naturally have to be, uh, you know, like we said off the top, have have your wits about you, or do they go through a vetting process? How does that work? How do you weed out, I suppose, the people who have an adventurous spirit but maybe not the technical skills? So we don't weed it out too, too bad. We do require you to have a basic knowledge of a GPS, which um, has to be shown at our request. So if we have, if we, we feel that you're not up to snuff on your tech GPS technology and stuff, we will pull you aside and get us to show you how to use your GPS, show us where your checkpoints are, show us where the, the things that we give you, show us where all that stuff is on your map and show us how to do with certain things. We will do that, but other for that, that's about all we do. We require a certain amount of minimum safety gear and uh, we just, uh, we that's what we do and we hope that people do what they got to do with, when it comes to using that stuff. And uh, so we do vet a little bit, but we basically let the race open to whoever and whenever they want to race. And how you do, how do you do, generally speaking, with sponsorship and the like? Were you able to pull all that together in uh, less than a year? Uh, we're doing okay. I, um, I won't say that it's been tough, because like anybody else that's been out there. I know we, we've had some race teams that haven't been able to uh, come aboard just because of sponsors and money and stuff. So it's it's been tough, but we're doing okay. I won't uh, I won't say that we're uh, we're hurting by any means, but um, we're still ticking and we're still prying. But uh, it's definitely since COVID, it's definitely been different. And be it a one year instead of the two year, it's it's been a little difficult again. But um, it's 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 coming along. Well, Chris, uh, all the best to, to you and the participants. Uh, we look forward to hearing more as uh, the dr- date uh, draws closer. March the 3rd is when everybody's uh, passing that uh, um, starting line. So I really appreciate your time this morning and keep us up to date. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Uh, Chris Lacey, of course, with Kane's Quest, managing to pull that together in less than a year after a very challenging year last year. When we come back, we hope to speak with you. And we are back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who's off today. We're going to go now to Daryl Shelley. You're on the line. Hello, Daryl. Hi, Linda. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great over here in Stephenville. It uh, looks like it might be a nice day today, I hope. Maybe get the dogs out for a walk. <laughs> Lovely. Yes, so uh, some people in the region may have heard by now, but the uh, Conservative Party of Canada sent out their official closing notice for uh, nomination contestants for the Long Range Mountains, and that's the whole region from port bass to St. Anthony, uh, Port-a-Port Peninsula, all the way over to Cornerbrook and Deer Lake area and everything else in between. Uh, and the notice deadline uh, closing is today, 5 p.m., so I decided to put my name in the, in the race, and uh, I finished my application yesterday at 4 o'clock Eastern time and had it sent in to head office for a decision, and uh, I think there are a couple of other prospect of uh, nominations as well, and it uh, looks like we might have a nomination contest on our hands in the coming weeks, depending on the decision from uh, the headquarters of Conservative Party, but I uh, look forward to getting the chance to represent the people in this region if, uh, if I'm given that chance. So today is the deadline for nominations. What prompted you to seek the nomination in the area? Well, Linda, I uh, got a little bit of a political background myself. Politics is in my blood and my family as well. 
Um, you know, my, my uncle Paul Shelley was an MHA for many, many years in Bay My father worked, Ron Shelley worked on a lot of campaigns throughout the years, and I volunteered on several when I was younger, but I never really took it seriously until the 2021 federal election when I ran with the People's Party of Canada. Uh, I ran with the People's Party, had the most votes as a fourth party candidate in that election and the most for the People's Party in this region. Uh, some people thought that I split that vote, which is actually not true. Um, I, I think uh, the former candidate, the candidate of record, Carol Anstey, lost by just over 1,800, and I got somewhere around 1,600. A lot of new voters that I had signed up at the time. And when I looked at what was going on with this election coming in, I met Pierre Polyev when he visited in February 2023. I met him again in May and uh, decided to join up with the Conservative Party. Uh, because I thought that it was our best chance to get rid of Goody Hutchings and uh, Trudeau Liberal government. So I took everything I had from the People's Party and another movement that I started here called NL United. I uh, stepped down as the leader of NL United. I took, uh, I spoke to uh, the people that have supported me. I uh, had a lot of meetings. I spoke to them and Zoom calls and phone calls, and they said they would back me up. So we decided to uh, to go with the Conservatives and bring that all over here. So there's no chance of a fourth party split vote in the next federal election. We're going to get everybody on the Conservative team team over here, regardless of who wins the nomination, we'll get behind yeah, whoever it is, whether it's uh, one of the other nominees or, or if it's myself, and we're going to beat Goody Hutchings and beat the Liberals in the next election. That's the name of the game, and we want to get everybody on the Conservative team to get Pierre Polyev in there and uh, make the change that this country desperately needs right now. So what are the issues facing the uh, riding as you see it? Well, I mean... We have a uh, Liberal MP right now, Goody Hutchings, as you know, who made a couple of big gaffes in the last year. I mean, one of them, one of the things that she said that she hunts uh, moose, tarbigan, and black bears with a 22 gauge, which isn't even a, a gun. It's not even a caliber. She might have meant 22 rim shot. For somebody who spent 10 years on the board of the Newfoundland Outfitters Association, she doesn't seem to know very much about firearms. I, I'm against Bill C-21. I'm against the gun ban that Trudeau is trying to impose. And I think uh, I, I, that the hunters and legal gun owners should not be punished for uh, uh, by people who don't even understand the types of guns or calibers that are used to hunt. If you used a 22 caliber rifle to go hunting with a moose or a black bear, it's actually against the law. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Um, I support gun owner rights. I support gun owners. I support hunters and outfitters, and I support the right for any Newfoundlander to want to go hunt and uh, earn uh, a license uh, for their family, regardless of what they're hunting, as long as they're within the rules and they have the licensing and they, they use the correct firearm and they're trained and they know what they're doing. I support it 100%. Any other issues of, uh, you know, that are, uh, obviously we have the uh, whole Port-a-Port uh, -port Peninsula um, proposed uh, wind and uh, hydrogen development, uh, and I know you've been vocal about that in the past. Is that going to come up uh, in any uh, future federal election? Yeah, thanks for the question, Linda. It's a good question. A lot of people um, take my stance out of context on that. I choose to stand with any person or any group of people that uh, are against or getting bullied by a company. I think that, uh, you know, the German chancellor came over here and, and he uh, came over here seeking natural gas. And this was a lot of people don't know this. In, in, in August... 
22. He came over here. German Chancellor met with Trudeau. He met with uh, Fury, and he met with uh, Liberal MP Goody Hutchings. And he was looking for natural gas. And we have uh, trillions of cubic feet in Newfoundland and Labrador proven reserves of, of, of liquefied natural gas. You can go look it up. We've, we've got it there. Um, instead of selling him the natural gas that he was looking for, we turned around, uh, or Trudeau turned around and sold him a project that hasn't been approved. It hasn't gone through the environmental rigor. It doesn't have a social license. It's not compensating people fairly. And it's a technology that hasn't been proven. We could have had jobs on the ground right now. The German chancellor went to Qatar and signed the deal, 15-year deal, in November or October or November of that year. You can look it up online. There's uh, tons of reports about it in routers and other places. He signed a deal for 2 million tons of liquefied natural gas with Qatar for 15 years worth tens of billions of dollars. And we have it already right here in our own backyard. Instead, they backed up their buddy for a fantasy project, John Reesley, for a fantasy project that hasn't even been approved yet. So I have a problem when they don't have a social license, and I have a problem when they don't know what they're doing. We the, the Absolute stupidity on the part of the Liberals. We could have been exploring that natural gas. And down the road, if uh, the wind technology gets approved and the wind technology seems to work or get efficient, listen, I'm not against wind technology. I'm not against uh, progress. It's got to be done right. And when a foreign national um, a president or leader comes here looking for natural resources that we already have in the ground or in the ocean, go get it and sell it to them right now. I mean, we could have had 300 jobs building the pipeline right now if we if we had given that German chancellor what he wanted. So absolutely ridiculous that uh, the liberals tried to to help their buddy John Reesley instead of giving the German chancellor what they needed. And of course, he needed that gas because of the Russian-Ukraine uh, war. So they lost their supply from Russia. A lot of people don't know all that. So there's tens of billions of dollars in business gone down the drain. They don't know what they're doing. Uh, despite the fact that we always reference the oil and gas uh, industry, we haven't seen any uh, exploitation of uh, natural gas in this uh, region. Why is that? Well, I mean, you have this liberal agenda with Stephen Gilbo, who's a former, you know, eco-terrorist. I mean, the guy's been charged with, uh, you know, uh, doing these, these stunts, trying to climb the CN Tower and all this kind of stuff. Uh, he's He was with Greenpeace at the time. He said he's a proud socialist. Um, he, they don't want any they're, – they're trying to achieve this net zero by 2030 agenda, and it is uh, preposterous to think that we can get there by uh, cutting oil and gas. Oil and gas is a part of Newfoundland's bloodline. We need this. We need oil and gas in order to uh, – I mean, all those checks that they got back from the government there last year all came from the oil and gas sector. I mean, it's created most jobs in Newfoundland since the fishery collapsed. I mean, this is – we need oil and gas. Uh, Newfoundland Labrador only produces a small fraction. We produce 2% of greenhouse gas emissions in Canada, and Canada produces 2% of greenhouse gas emissions in the world for uh, for, for, for carbon emissions. That's uh, only 0.04% of the atmosphere in total. So just to make that simple and clear, if you cut out every single car and every single emissions in Newfoundland Labrador today, just stopped it all, it wouldn't even put a hundredth of a percent in the global uh, carbon emissions. So it's foolish to say that we shouldn't be exploring oil and gas when we've got tons of proven reserves here. And we need to get big oil and big oil and gas approved as quickly as possible. It's got to be done with a social license. It's got to be done with the environmental checks and balances. And the people locally must benefit from the projects. And if it's done right, I'll get behind it. So, Daryl, uh, the uh, nominations for the Conservative um, uh, nomination uh, closing today. Uh, you say there's going to be a bit of a race there? 
It looks like it. Like you said, the National uh, Council, the, the, the Conservative Party headquarters has to make a decision um, on my application and uh, whoever else applies. Uh, I know that uh, Robbie Coles from Cormac also has uh, sent in his package. He, uh, he's had a Facebook page as well. And Carol Anstey as well, for, who uh, ran last time, has also uh, submitted hers as far as I know. And I put mine in. So we're going to see what they say at head office. And uh, if they, they like what we present and what I represent, uh, hopefully I'll get a chance to have a uh, nomination contest and and the members it'll only be available for members of the conservative party and you had to be signed up i think by last uh, the fifth of the month i think in order to uh, take part in the nomination process um that's that's uh, that's the way that that works but if you do if you are a conservative member and you are in the region and or you're interested in joining the party and you want to know more uh reach out to me online you can find me on facebook two r's two l's last name shelley ey daryl shelley send me a direct message um i'll i'll call anybody and talk to them about the issues in this province and what we need to do. There's, there's been too many years that we've been getting ripped off and scammed by the Liberals, and it's time for us to get it right. Appreciate your call this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you, Linda. Have a wonderful day. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, and uh, Daryl Shelley is one of a number of people apparently seeking the conservative nomination in the riding of Long Range Mountains. Uh, we are up to news time now with VOCM's Brian Medor. When we come back, a uh, number of people waiting in the line on a variety of topics. We look forward to speaking with them and we look forward to speaking with you. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. And we're back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who's off today. We have a lost item uh, that somebody wants to reunite with the owner. A um, woman uh, reached out to us to indicate that on Tibbs Eve, December 23rd, while she was in Clarenville, she noticed a set of prayer beads on the uh, parking lot at the Walmart in Clarenville. So she picked them up. Uh, she says um, uh, she knows how important they must have been to somebody. So she's uh, letting people know that she uh, picked up a set of prayer beads in December in the uh, parking lot of the Walmart in Clarenville. So if you uh, are were missing your prayer, prayer beads, she wants to reunite you with them. Uh, she's uh, left her phone number. Um, Brady is her name. Uh, 427-6219. And um, if you uh, are missing your prayer beads and you... Um, think they may be yours uh, we have that phone number Brady Guy is her name and um, you can uh, call Dave and Dave will pass on the number as well I have the number here Dave uh, so I'm sorry we're going to go now to Brian you're on the air hello Brian yes how are you great how are you not too bad this is Linda right okay yes sir uh, yes I was uh, driving around here a little while ago and I was listening to a gentleman talking about the grocery prices and all that stuff and uh, he, he makes very good points and uh, the point I want to make is uh, of that the grocery stores could probably lower their prices a bit because here's my point they're not no longer paying for bags since all of this nonsense come out with the COVID thing uh, in fact I think they're making money off selling bags plus they don't have the people packing the bags for you anymore. We are doing that, kind of like the Costco thing. So I, over a course of a year, if you added all that up, I'd say they're saving quite a lot of money on, you know, uh, just people that they don't need for bagging and stuff because 
because we, we, we people are basically doing all that ourselves. So, you know, it, it just uh, it comes to question in my mind, like, uh, they're, they're making a savings here. So uh, why can't they kind of lower their prices a bit, knowing that they're saving a ton of money? You're right, because we're not the only jurisdiction, of course, that has a plastic bag ban in place. Uh, But, you know, that must have been an immediate savings to any grocers in in this province when that was implemented. Well, thank you for agreeing with that. Uh, And the funny thing is, I still walk out every day with a bag, not every day, but a bag of potatoes, bag of carrots, a bag of this, a bag of that, plastic, 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 plastic. But yet... They took that privilege away from us. Uh, I don't know if it's just to irk us or what, but but just to maybe bring in these new green bags that, uh, you know, the minute you put something in it, it gets contaminated. And, you you know, the last thing you want to do is be washing them, you know. It's like, oh, there's a meat stain on it, you know, or it gets in- contaminated. So, But the plastic ones are great because they were kind of disposable. You put it in your garbage or you use it as a garbage bag in a small little thing beside your toilet. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So now you got to go out and buy that stuff, whether it's to scoop up your dog poop or your cat litter or or even just put in your little, um, you know, waste paper basket next to the toilet. You know what I mean? Precisely. And uh, I just wanted to raise that point to people because it, it just seems that this government and like my whole family were liberals growing up. And uh, I don't think many are anymore. Not not that I am a part of any party, particularly myself. But uh, but when somebody does things like that, they're, what they're doing is they're inconveniencing you for some stupid agenda that everybody's trying to get their head around. And uh, I just wanted to bring up that point, uh, you know, about uh, the grocery stores. Like, is is that extra money going to the CEOs? You're like, oh, yeah, I'm breaking an extra now. Like, what a great day. You know, you think they could uh, at least figure out what they're saving so much a year by not having to have those grocery baggers, which there used to be a ton of them, as you know. And now they don't need them anymore because we are the baggers now. And we're buying their bags with their with their logo on it, and they're making even more of a fortune. So, you know, at least they could give the people a little break, you know. Like, I'm just trying to make a point, and I'm glad you kind of agree with me there, you know. Brian, interesting observations. We'll see what others have to say. Thanks very much. But I won't keep you, and uh, thank you for letting me talk. All righty. I, I hope people hear it as far and wide. All okay. right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Uh, Of course, what did we do before plastic bags? Uh, That's always a big question. We had uh, paper bags, if you recall, and those were never reintroduced. And if they are reintroduced, guess what? You got to pay for them each. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) um, he's making some interesting points there. If you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. We're going to go now to uh, Greg Sheaves. You're on the air. Hello, Greg. Morning, this is Greg Sheaves in Port of Bass. How are you doing? Not too bad, not too bad. I've been listening to lots of comments and lots of serious problems in Newfoundland and basically across Canada regarding housing, housing shortages. Uh, It seems like a lot of people are trying to correct this problem, but let's go back and see where this problem originated from. It's been in the last eight or ten years since this Trudeau liberal government has been in power. Now, they put in place this stupid carbon tax, which don't accomplish anything, only it's a money grab. Now, in the meantime, <clears throat> the carbon tax drove up all the material costs, all the manufacturing costs, all the trucking costs. 
So in turn, up goes the cost of building houses or apartments, which sometimes people give up on doing. Now, by doing the carbon tax and by driving the cost of everything, up goes the replacement value of your constructed building or apartments. Therefore, up goes your insurance costs because now your replacement cost is more. So by driving up your replacement cost and the value on your building, and if you're into a city or a municipality, up goes all your property tax. So where does all of that tax get taxed on to or passed on to? It gets passed on to the tenants. So in turn, the government is driving this problem. Now, here in town, like they put up the mill rates again, you know, by another uh, one mill or whatever, and different places did the same. Now, in the meantime, some of these towns have soon got to realize you can't spend the same way today, like Fort Bass, for example, when back in the early 70s we had, you know, 62 to 6,500 people. Today we're down to 3,250. You can't keep adding on and adding on and wasting and wasting. Now, I own an apartment building, and before this Western Regional Waste Management scam came into effect again by the Liberal government, my garbage collection was built into my property tax. So just a couple of years ago, they realized, oh, that's not enough now, so we're going to charge you more. So then they increased my cost for the other 11 units up to almost another $2,000. Where does that have to go? It's got to get tacked on to the the tenants. Then, back when I bought my building years ago, just to show you how municipalities and government can really do you, uh, my building was a whole hospital that had a four-inch water line, and I didn't need a four-inch water line, so I reduced it down to a two. At that time, a two-inch commercial water line to a commercial building was $900 a year. But because I went and did 12 apartments, I had to pay 12 times the household rate which was $3,200. Where did that get tacked on? To the tenants. All because of municipalities and the government. Now, because the government is allowing these interest rates to get driven up, it increased all the costs for people to build apartments and units. So, therefore, no incentive to build anymore. So now the government wants to get in on the bandwagon and, you know, doing these apartments. But, you know... Who do we blame? Like, even today, we can't find people to go to work. Why? Because these people are taxed to death. If they make a little bit of money, by the time their taxes come out, and then you get, they, they raise the minimum wage. And the minimum wage goes up, for example, $1. The only people who gain from that $1 is the government who collects 30 cents. Because when that goes up, Every business that you buy commodities from increased the price of all the goods. So when you got that kind of stuff, and then like the gas tax, the fuel tax, uh, I'm in the construction business also. For me to go right now with a dump truck or a tractor truck to a key lock fuel system here, for me to buy $900 for the fuel, $300 is taxes to the government that don't even own an oil refinery. They don't have an oil truck. They just grab, 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 but in turn, it drives up the cost of all building constructions, which in turn adds all these other taxes, insurance tax, because you drove the cost. So, and, and now we've got our local town 
who's gone into the apartment business using my tax dollars to come in and compete against me. And they're also using town equipment, for example, to do their snow clearing. i got to do my own. You know, so where's their profits going to go eventually? And then after Fiona, the Red Cross comes in and buys up two commercial buildings in an industrial park with tax with people's donated money, and now the, the government is going to give the town more money to do up these two commercial buildings in an industrial park where they rezone for their personal gains, which no one else could do. You know, so here you've got the town competing against local business off of taxpayers' money. So why would I go and build more units to provide a for all these people, and the government is involved, the families are involved, and, you know, all this kind of stuff keeps going on. And then, Their disincentives the, is uh, what you're saying, is that? Yeah, there's no incentive whatsoever because we're in competition now with the government. And then the government comes out on the radio and says, oh, we're going to donate a million and a half dollars to food banks because they need it. Why do they need it? Because the government is taking everything from them. It's no incentive for those people to do anything. It's not, if I was, like, I've been in business for 45 years. If I was coming out of school today, the first thing I'd do, I'd go on social services. And I, I, I brag about it because I know that I'm feeding out of the same pot that all of these government workers and politicians are feeding out of. And if, you, if you're going to go to work, and you got to pay the taxes. You got to go buy a vehicle to go to work. You got to pay the taxes, and that that tax gets tacked on over and over if you, if you buy and sell a vehicle anyway. Newfoundland is another grab. And then they come up and Trudeau with this carbon tax. Oh, they're going to give back rebates, and Newfoundlanders is going to get back more than they paid in. Like, how the hell does that work? Because the people who pay in the carbon tax are business people who are running transportation companies, manufacturing companies, but they're not entitled to anything back. So the government's keeping all of that carbon tax and giving back crumbs to the people. You know, it's the same as the HST rebates. All the people who don't pay in much HST gets back all the HST rebates. And, you know, it, it's just ridiculous to see what this liberal government is doing to the people of Newfoundland and what they're actually doing they're creating a problem so that just before an election, like they're trying to do now, they're trying to correct the problems that they cause to make them look like the almighty savior so they can get reelected again, so they can put the screws to you again. So, you know, I can give, I can talk to you all the morning about how the government is doing the people of this province. And it's totally ridiculous. Everything that you do, they got their fingers in it. And by having their fingers in it, they're also creating more jobs for their friends in the government. You know, if if I'm at the construction business, for example, I got to pay my taxes to the government. I got to go buy paying a carbon tax to the government. So I picks up a half decent driver. So he's driving my truck, and I'm paying, for example, twenty dollars an hour. But all of a sudden, Marine Atlantic, the government would like to have my driver, so they're going to use thirty dollars an hour of my money to hire him. So who are we in competition with? So that's why we're in the situation we're in. 
There's no incentive for anybody to invest anymore. Like, it's actual facts, and this is reality. So I don't know what your thoughts are. Well, Greg, we're overdue for a break, but you certainly uh, provided us with uh, a lot of information there. I, I really would invite people to see what they have to say about uh, some of the issues you just raised, including this whole um, uh, concept of competing with governments uh, for uh, you know projects like um, housing. Um, Greg, really appreciate your call. Thank you very much. Okay, Linda, thanks for your time. Alrighty. Bye-bye. And uh, we're going to take a short break. What do you think? Uh, Give us a call. Well, some um, really uh, rollicking discussions here on Open Line this morning. If you have any thoughts on anything anyone's had to say or you want to weigh in with some of your own issues, by all means do so. Now is your opportunity to give us a call. We're going to go now to Charlie. You're on the air. Hi, Charlie. Oh, good morning, Linda. How are you? Oh, doing fine. Just just waiting to get outdoors. <laughs> a wild morning. <laughs> yeah, what's it like out your way? Well, it's it's wind and rain at the moment, but uh, it's starting to clear a little bit. So hopefully this afternoon, get out get out and uh, do some outdoor activities. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'd like to I'd like to do a change of pace for some of your topics this morning. Uh, I'll call this one uh, UFOs and Evangelicals. How about that? Okay. <laughs> There's a book out called, I just finished reading it, called The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory. It's by a pastor's son, uh, Tim Alberta. And he talks about his own, his uh, father was uh, conservative, but uh, he, he wasn't a member of the right wing uh, group. He talks about uh, why they uh, they support right wing causes, why many of them became Trumpers, and it's a very very fascinating book. Basically, they think their their uh, beliefs, their religion in particular, is under attack. The churches are under attack by groups and by government, and uh, the only way they can uh, fight back is by getting some temporal power themselves. Now true, of course, people like Trump and uh, others. Uh, Many of them haven't joined the movement. They believe that it's a spiritual uh, thing, not a temporal thing. And they keep reminding these pastors that uh, Jesus Christ's message was uh, temporal power is not what it's all about. That's for the state. It's all about uh, spiritual aspirations and so on, right? So anyway, uh, he, uh, he he makes the case that they've gone astray. Uh, he says many of the children of these pastors... By the way, some of these pastors are forced to almost uh, preach this stuff in church, political stuff, because the congregations demand it. If they don't get that message, they go to another church where the pastor does talk about that. So many of them feel uh, almost uh, forced into this, this position. And he says many of the children... Uh, are are dismayed by 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 their fathers uh in some cases the mother i suppose uh, by their message and uh they they don't go along with all this conservative right wing garbage that that's being put out there right I don't know if you wanted to comment on that, but I'd recommend the book highly the kingdom the power and the glory so the the politics are driving it yes interesting the other one I wanted to uh, mention i've have briefly uh, at a party some months ago 
I don't know. Have you heard of a space engineer or a space uh, promoter by the name of Robert Bigelow? I can't say that I have. Okay. Um, he became a billionaire in the uh, uh, property development in, in the Western States. His main interest was in aerospace. Uh, that's why he said he wanted to make his money. So he's been involved with uh, the Pentagon. They 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 did a study, a $22 million study on uh, on uh, anomalies, space anomalies, UFOs, and so on. There's a ranch out in Utah. It's it's uh, the the name of it was the Sherman Ranch, but it's more popularly known as the Skinwalker Ranch. This was after a Navajo legend uh, about. Uh, concerning vengeful shamans. <laughs> they don't go near the place, by the way, the, uh, the uh, Navajo tribe. Anyway, um, the Shermans reported back in the 70s, after they bought it, they, uh, they reported a lot of anomalies and things happening. They, they, in fact, they were terrified. They went to the media eventually. They ended up selling the place to Bob Bigelow. I think it was 500 and something acres for just $200,000. Some people say they, they just created the story to sell the ranch, but they, they certainly didn't make any money off it. But anyway, you always get the doubters. So he bought the ranch, and he established a, a scientific group called NIDS and sent in people, scientists, with uh, teams of scientists with their uh, all kinds of gear and so on. They reported uh, many anomalies and many things that were, in fact, paranormal things were were, were brought into the uh, into the mix. Uh, it's the type of thing you can't get your head around. Sometimes they'd see something uh, themselves, but it wouldn't register on instruments. And uh, I think they got after a couple of decades. They got frustrated because there's not much you can report when you when you're talking about uh, things like uh, UFOs and paranormal stuff, you know. Anyway, he sold the ranch eventually. Uh, it still it was bought by another guy who was uh, continuing the, the research there. But if anybody was interested, it was on the History Channel. Uh, that's how I became interested, and uh, it was called the uh, the Hunt for the Skinwalker. It's a fascinating account. By the way, some of the scientists who were examining uh, and looking for things there, when they went home, uh, some cases very, very far away, they reported uh, things happening to them in their homes. Again, moving objects, strange lights, and so on. And this happened to several of these scientists who uh, who uh, went to the ranch. Apparently, it followed them home, anyway. So that that I thought was a... Uh, a, a very interesting topic, and uh, anybody interested, that's, that's the name of the book. All right, Charlie, uh, thanks uh, very much for the, uh, I guess, change in pace, as you uh, indicated off the top. I really appreciate your time. We're up to news time now. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome, Linda. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Your thoughts on that? You're welcome to give us a call. Uh, I would think if you're experiencing paranormal activity or what you think to be paranormal activity and you move to another location, then the issue is not paranormal activity. That would be my initial on the outside looking in uh, kind of observation. We're up to news time now. Uh, Now is your time to give us a call. We're into the last half hour of the show. Let's go. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. 
And we are back. We are going to go now to uh, Dennis O'Keefe. You're on the air. Hello. Hello, Linda. How are you this? Not too bad a morning, I guess. Not too bad. <laughs> Not too yeah, good either, but... <laughs> Could be all the snow, so we're kind of lucky we we got that mixture. I know it's sloppy and everything else, but uh, we'll get through that. No, indeed. And when you compare it to what we were getting this time four years ago, uh, we're all right. Got that right. Linda, I just wanted to comment on an old, old topic again, but it's, it's so important that that uh, i, I got to bring it up again, and that's the Public Utilities Board. We're going on two years now since the province mandated the Public Utilities Board to review how they regulate the price of gas and oil in Newfoundland and Labrador. <clears throat> two years. It'll be two years in June. And it's been that long that I forget the name of the company. They paid a lot of money to do the study. And we're still waiting to hear something. Uh, recently... The PUB, when well, it was the federal government and the uh, clean air tax. They increased the price, uh, the tax on gas last week, and I think it was three and a half cents or so. And um, the PUB, in its wisdom, opted to five cents, so five and a bit. And yes, despite all of that, and the Minister of Energy, Minister Parsons, asking the PUB to explain to the public exactly what's happening with the price of fuel in Newfoundland, Labrador, and with the, this new clean air tax that our seven Liberal MPs and our Liberal Prime Minister imposed on Canada, all Canadians, including Newfoundland, Labrador, the PUB decided, no, we're not doing any interviews. And I just wondering, I mean... Who is running the show? Is, is it is the PUB is appointed by the Lieutenant Governor and Council, which is the Premier and the Cabinet, and yet they can ask the PUB to explain what's happening to the public because it all contributes to inflation and on and on it goes. And the PUB can say, no, we're not doing any interviews, and that's it. You would think the Premier would turn around and say to the chair of the PUB, speak to the public or give me a resignation. Simple as that. Now, they so, did introduce amendments to uh, the legislation governing uh, the Public Utilities Board, and that was, gosh, that was announced sometime last year, was it not? Yeah, that had, but that's different, and this was specific. The, the study to be done to review the formula which was established to uh, regulate the price of gas and oil in Newfoundland, Labrador. And that's still ongoing. I've been after the minister, Sarah Studley, a number of times now to come public and tell us where is it, when are we going to see it, and what, what does it say? Are we regulating properly? Uh, is there a better way to do it? Uh, I mean, we're, we're less than limbo when it comes to one of the most important things in the province these days, and, and in Canada for that matter, and that's the cost of energy. 
And in terms of speaking so, publicly, I, I can't recall any time when uh, anyone representing the PUB spoke publicly, aside from perhaps uh, Andy Wells, who was a bit of an outlier anyway. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And they're going into hiding. They, they, they flatly refused to, a few weeks ago to do that interview at the request of the minister. He said, you know, you should, the PUB is quite adamant that Minister Parsons, they should get out and explain to the public. And they're not doing it, so maybe the Premier of the day, Premier Fury, needs to snap up and just say to them, boys, go public, explain what you're doing. Release that report. I don't even know if the report is finished. I, I thought it was finished, and it was due to go back to the PUB sometime in in the fall. Uh, all I know is we're going into a, it's more than a year and a half now. So how long does it take when when uh, Roger Grimes established the Petroleum Pricing Commission and George Saunders out in Bishop Falls? Uh, was the commissioner, and very, very quickly the formula was established, a formula, and it worked. And um, yet we had this public body, the PUB, who are into two years reviewing a formula. I mean, it's not rocket science, believe me. From my experience when it comes to that whole fight for the regulatory process about 20 years ago. So I just like somebody to speak up. The Premier, Minister Studley, the Chair of the Public Utilities Board. Tell us what's going on. A good question, uh, Dennis. Uh, we'll see if there's anyone uh, who are who's able to give us an update on that process. Thank you very much. <laughs> Well, I hope. I mean, you know, it's it's Minister Sudley's purview to uh, uh, to speak to it, and it's the Premier's purview, really, to say to the PUB, you know, boss, you've got to learn how to communicate with the public and, and tell the public what's going on with taxation. We still have the fuel tax, I call it the North Atlantic tax, five cents a litre, and you wonder what's driving up the price of, and the carbon tax, and... The price of energy is just rocketing every every time you turn around, and there's nobody giving any explanation for it. Dennis O'Keefe, appreciate your call this morning. Thank you very much. Stay dry. Thanks, Linda. You take care. Alrighty. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. We're going to take a very short break. When we come back, we hope to speak with you in the last few uh, minutes of the show. Now is your opportunity to give us a call. And we're back into the final few minutes of the show. And, of course, uh, the lines are lit up like a Christmas tree, as they say. So we'll try to uh, move through as quickly as possible, get as many people on as possible, uh, while still expressing their opinions. Hello, Sean. Good morning, Linda. You're doing a great job there this morning. Thank you. What's on your mind? Well, uh, I guess the, the whole Dominion thing has gotten me a little bit uh, in, a, in a buzz here. I, wanted to, I, I was meaning to call in earlier about this, but over Christmas... I went into a Dominion store and, you know, big lineups there. And I, I usually go in around 5, 6 o'clock, pick up a few things, maybe cook it up that night. And, of course, they had the sign on a lot of the the food there, especially in the fresh area where I go. Um, and, uh, and it says, you know, like, buy it now, use it tonight. And they still have the 50% on it. I mean, like, I'd buy it anyway. So I think I'm going to use it tonight. I'll pick it up now. So I went down. Usually, like, I'd just go down for the, for the walkthrough, uh, your own self-serve 
system and, and go on out of there. But that day I had several other things with me, you know, like in my basket. And I thought, I better go. Yeah, I still go down there. And uh, there was a big lineup that had a lot of the cashiers. So I went through there. And, and halfway through, I realized I just happened to look at the screen, and it took the 50% thing. And instead of reducing it in half, it stayed at the same price. And when the bill came out, I, I looked at all of it. And all the 50% things, I had three or four of them out of my entire basket and i called over the uh, the attendant there and i explained it to her she says oh you've got to physically go in there and change that yourself what said, well, that doesn't happen it doesn't happen in the regular uh cashier line no she said a lot of people don't realize that and she said once in a while someone will ask me about it and then they'll go in and change it uh, you know i thought well well, like a little sign that, you know, like at that particular self-servicing would be nice saying, you know, like our reduced price items, you have to reduce them yourselves or something like that. And I thought for the last four or five years, I had never realized that. And I thought about all the money that Loblaws have gotten from me all those years because I just, you know, you're in a rush. You, like usually most of us in a rush to get through the supermarket, get your things and go on. And it just never dawned on me. So I wanted to bring this up today because, you know, when they reduce their 50% down to 30 now, uh, it's going to reduce the amount of people that will probably take the risk because a lot of the food, you can't tell how good it is, especially the fruit. Uh, they have these camouflaged, uh, uh, you know, uh, little uh, bags, you know, with, with all the holes in them uh, for, for the uh, for apples that are going down in price or for oranges or whatever else. So you really can't tell how good it really is unless you break open the bag. But, you know, oftentimes you don't get the full full value. you got to throw half it out. But, you know, when when I heard that the other day about the dropping it down to 30%, I think there's going to be a lot of – there will likely be a lot of people who, who won't take advantage of that because it is a bit of a risk when you're buying food that's, that's at the end of the date. But it really bothered me during Christmas when I saw the, the fact that they weren't uh, automatically reducing it. In other words, there isn't a little – programming thing added into the uh, into the system for your uh, for your own self-serve checkouts no and i knew that because i've uh, often had to ask the attendant to help me out with the reduction and they'll do it for you um but uh, yeah as far as doing it yourself i don't know about that side of things well i didn't realize it and like yeah i mean if i've got a you know some bananas or other fruit i oh, like like i'll go in there and put put in the change myself or put in the pounds and whatnot and select the item but never up until now did I realize that uh, that they don't give you the 50% unless you physically go and change it. So you, you've done it. Uh, I didn't realize it because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to support the people who are actually cashing you in to keep them in jobs. I mean, after a while, I think there's a couple of supermarket chains in the U.S. now that have gone fully uh, self-serve well you know there's more jobs gone and others are going back by the way all others are getting rid of the self-serve and going back yeah this is true yeah it's a real conundrum uh and you know my grandmother used to love to go to the supermarket and love to go to the bank and love to go down and pay your bills she'd take the bus from Cowan avenue and go down on the bus and get off downtown somewhere and you know a bit of bit of out for her get out of the apartment and and see and see people and that that really nice feeling that you get when you go back in and you see people who you've got to know over the years and you know that's another part of it too i mean you see the the cashier is is interacting with the client well you don't get any interaction from a from a self-serve catch so i you know i really think that that we're losing a valuable part of our society when you go into banks 
and you go into these uh, these these places and uh, and and you don't have a connection with people there. So I think you're right. I think it's great that some are going back. They're realizing the theft is so high. They're thinking that they're going to go back to the old ways. And I I think some of the old ways were great ways. There are new things we're doing. But I, but I like the all ways too. So there's a lot of benefit there. But anyway, and it, you know, like all the people who are listening across your province today, and elsewhere, I just wanted to, to put them on the warning that uh, they aren't getting their their discounts if you go through the uh, the self cash. And I uh, hope that uh, helps people out. Uh, Sean, thank you. My pleasure. Take all right. Bye bye. We're going to go now to Don. You're on the air. Hi, Don. Good morning, Linda. How are you? I'm great, Don. How are you? I'm doing great, Linda. I'd like to take this opportunity to use your show to give my voice to our premier concerning road safety and snow clearing on our highways. I listened to your show this morning report that road travel from uh, Cape Royal to Chance Cove Park wasn't recommended. Uh, probably what you guys also didn't know from Bay Wounds to Cape Royal road conditions were atrocious. And our, our premier, before he, he took this profession, he, he, he was charged with, with a practice of keeping people safe and helping people as best that he was capable of doing. And it just boggles my mind as to why our premier and our government continue to put us in harm's way by not listening to the people who bring it to their attention, like the MHAs of the day, and tell them that, like, it, if the city of St. John's operated snow clearing the way the Department of Highways does, I suspect Lynn Ann Windsor wouldn't be a very popular person. Uh, I know for a fact that the road conditions, say, in St. John's or, you know, on, on, in manuals, it's a completely different beast once you head up towards Southern Shore Highway. And we have people traveling those roads every day for doctor's appointments. Uh, medical issues to work just, just got no just got no choice but to go and the one thing i didn't hear this morning on on your show was that when they recommended that travel that travel wasn't recommended from cape royal to chance cove park i didn't hear of any uh, school closures for that area i travel that area quite often um and i'll just share what happened to me two friday evenings ago at six o'clock in the evening I was trying to make my way to Chapassi, and road conditions started to deteriorate along the way. And by the time I reached Portugal Cove South, I ended up stranded on the side of the highway with no cell phone service, uh, three people in my vehicle. And we were very fortunate enough that two people, uh, a man and a lady, graciously opened their door when I knocked on it, welcomed us in got us to where we needed to go, kept us safe. And the only issue was that our plows weren't on our road in a timely fashion. We're not asking for 24-hour snow clearing. We're just asked for when you know there's weather coming, send the plows out. Reach out to the men and women who operate these depots that are strategically placed around our province and ask them, how do we do a better job? How do we keep our residents safe? It's, it's, it's sad. There was a letter sent off to Minister Abbott on, on the issue that I, that the ordeal that I went through two Friday evenings ago, and the response was, we'll look into it in, internally. Well, you know what? If my experience had ended in a tragedy, somebody would have been on the news saying, I, I wonder was it 
due to road conditions or vehicle maintenance or anything of that nature. And I wouldn't have had a voice. But luckily for me, those kind people of Portugal Cove South took me in. And I'm here today to give my voice to my Premier and tell him that the only issue the only issue there was was the fact that at 6 o'clock in the evening, our highways weren't ploughed. And I don't think that's acceptable, and I don't think it's good enough. And when our NHA that represents this district brings it to the attention in the House of Assembly, rather than uh, the people on the other side getting a dig or a poke in at the gentleman who's bringing it forward, just stop and listen, because what he's telling you is what he's hearing from the voices of the people on the southern shore and our hallways all alike. And rather than getting a poke or a dig in at them, down and figure out how you can make it safer and better for everybody at hand. And and that's that's just the voice. That's my opinion and, and I hope and I do know that, you know, all hands on deck at the Confederation building, someone's gonna put this in the ear of Premier Fury this morning and, and I'd like to offer him the opportunity the next time there's a snow or calling for snow or, or harsher conditions, get in your detail and get those guys to bring you to Chance Cove Park or Chapassi or jump in with me and I'll bring you and let me know how you feel. How, how, how do you feel about being on road conditions when you know the only reason you're putting it, you're being put in harm's way is the fact that our plows just ain't on the road. Don, I'm, I'm so glad you're safe, and I'm glad you uh, had an opportunity to uh, to tell your story and uh, give that firsthand um, uh, experience to us. Uh, th- thank you very much. And I appreciate you. All righty. Do better, do better, Premier Fury. We deserve it. All right. Thanks for your call. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And we're going to go now to Jean. You're on the air. Hi, Jean. Hi. How are you this morning? Good. How are you? I'm pretty good, but I just wanted to uh, support Don as to what he was saying. I think that the uh, highways should be cleared and um, that uh, sometimes they are lackadaisy with regard to that. Other than that, now, my uh, topic uh, that I wanted to speak about was the cost of living, and uh, there was a... You had a caller a while back that said uh, if he was a young man today, um, he would go on welfare. And I can't blame him. The reason I can't blame him is because you take a, a person today, if they were making, say, just give a figure of $24 an hour, okay, uh, it don't seem like a bad amount when you look at $24 an hour. Now look at what they're actually carrying home from their check, which is about one-third less than that, which brings it down to about $16 an hour, time the taxes are taken out, the Canada pension and any other medical benefits or whatever that they may have. Um, If you're on social assistance, you'll get those medical benefits. Now, I'm not against the sick person. Don't, Don't get me wrong there. And if a person is sick and they don't have any income and they're on social assistance, God bless them, give them what you can, government. 
absolutely. But uh, I think there's a lot of advantage taken, and it seems like sometimes the harder a person works, the harder he's expected to work. I've seen that. I've gone through it. I've seen it time and time again. Plus the fact now that $16 an hour out of 24 that you're bringing home, every time you go to the supermarket, you look at your grocery it bill less and, and see less how power. much tax is yeah. on it. Jean? Every time you buy building materials, every time you go yeah. for gas, your insurance. Jean, I hate to cut you off, but we're uh, completely out of time. Um, okay. But I invite you to call tomorrow, and hopefully Patty will be back tomorrow. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you, Linda. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, sorry, I hate cutting people off, but we're up to a hard uh, end to the show. So uh, thanks, everyone, for listening and contributing. Uh, with any luck, Patty will be back tomorrow. I'm just thinking about travel and weather, that's all. And um, um, join Brian Callahan this afternoon for News Talk. Thanks for listening.